Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. How are we doing, everybody? This is the co-host, Matthew Charette. Ryan and myself are glad you are joining us for this episode. We strive to bring the best quality of audio and video possible. Having said that, during the recording of this episode, we experienced some technical difficulties. Most of the issues we are able to correct in editing. However, some parts may have small distortions in the audio that could not be corrected without sacrificing the story you're about to hear. We apologize and hope you can look past the issues. Please enjoy this episode with the host of the Day of Battle podcast, Joe Hayes. Thanks for listening. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us, guys. And as always, if there's anything that you pick up in this episode and you take away that something trans, uh, transformational, something to take with you, something that strikes you, I ask you just to share that out to anybody that could take that message away with them as well. Let's don't be selfish with the information. Pass, pass, pass. Uh, today's Today, our special guest is... Uh, uh, a likewise a podcaster, likewise a marine, likewise uh, been in the grips of combat and uh, climb climb his way out of, of that situation, uh, become a first responder, get out of that situation, not get out of it, but thrive in it, and continues to find success in ways to be successful uh, post combat. His name is Joe Hayes, and he is the host of and you know founder of the day of battle podcast um joe thanks for coming out and welcome to the show man my pleasure gentlemen thank you for having me absolutely so just a little backstory on how i even got in contact with joe it's uh it's kind of a it's a crazy thing in the warfighting community you got a bunch of guys and it's like minds it's not same minds but it's like minds right so we know what our friends like or what our friends are into and one of my corpsman buddies that i spend a lot of time with i'm not gonna say his name because ain't cleared that but he's around this area and has spent a lot of time talking having intellectual conversations trying to you know figure ourselves out figure the world out the kind of a guy and um been helping me you know just with different things throughout the time and and, and we spent a lot of time together and so so he reached out to me, you know, several months ago. He's like, Hey man, uh, you know, I know you're really into podcasts and, and you're doing your thing and you got your thing. And he's like, maybe you should collaborate with other podcasters. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm down for that. You know, I have, I have that already on my schedule, but like, you know, what do you, what do you got in mind? And, uh, he says, you know what, well, you know, I'm gonna send you a link and it's, it's called day of battle. And you know, I think it's right up your alley, you know, check it out. And I'm like, all right, cool. So he sends it to me, and, and I, like I was telling you, I have a whiteboard, man. Um, whiteboard came with me out of the Marine Corps and stayed in my stayed in my back pocket. I, I, I keep it up; they're everywhere. I got them on my fridge. I got them on my wall. So I go to the whiteboard and I put Joe Hayes Day of Battle podcast, uh, you know, and I walk away from it. And you know, a period of weeks or maybe even you know month, month and a half later, I'm looking up my whiteboard. And I'm like, all right, time's come. Got to call this guy. I'd already checked out, you know, some of your work and. 
and liked the message. And uh, so I called Joe up and I think I had an appointment with, with my wife, to be honest with you, a, a date, not an appointment, uh, to go out. And um, I thought, you know, I'm going to call this guy. I don't know him. We probably talked for five minutes, you know, 10 minutes. I'll ask him, you know, if he's interested in collaborating a little bit. And then, you know, we'll, we'll kind of feel it out from there and we'll get in the truck and we'll go to dinner. So it was like, 48 minutes later my wife's like doing the toe tap looking at me me and him just kind of hit it off vibe he's you know sharing his story and 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 quite a story it is so uh just like i asked you i took something from the conversation and said this is a person that i need to have on there because uh if i'm finding it interesting i'm taking things away from it there's got to be other people that are going to do that too so um i'm gonna leave it right there man and let's let's start at the beginning of early life and just kind of kick it kick it from there you got it man and again, thank you. And man, the honor is all mine. I consider this a great privilege to be here. And I've listened to your stuff and I, I really like what you're doing. So about me, I guess where it all started for me to go into the Marine Corps, become a warfighter. I think it all started with my, with my father and my grandfathers. So mm. both of my grandfathers were in the army during World War II. And one of them landed on Utah Beach, I'm not sure which day, whether it was June 6th or you know the 7th or 8th, but he he landed on Utah Beach and he fought all the way up through the Battle of the Bulge, and he was a he was in the Signal Corps, and so he was primarily primarily a radio operator, and mm -hmm. he was I want to say he was a little bit older when he enlisted because he was born in 1911, so you know he's like 31 years old, 31, 33 years old when D-Day went down. Mm -hmm. Considerably older than most of his peers, I'm sure. And mm -hmm. knowing what he did, what he went through, it made an impact on me, even though I didn't really get the chance and opportunity to discuss his experiences with him. And we know like a lot of that generation did not discuss things. And my grandpa... He was a truck driver, and I think he really kept a lot of that stuff on the inside. So, nevertheless, it made an impact on me. And then, really, secondly, and in, in the biggest way, I would say my father and his service made an impact on me and gave me that desire to serve. So, my dad's name was John Hayes, and he enlisted in the Army during Vietnam in 1966. And he was fresh out of high school and he wanted to serve his country. You know, he, I think he knew his number was, had the definite chance of getting called up, but he chose to just enlist and him and his, his best friend enlisted together. His best friend went to Vietnam, became a door gunner on a helicopter, did two tours. And my dad got sent to Germany in missile defense. Mm -hmm. So I, I think he wanted to go to Vietnam. He always, I know he always like regretted not getting the experience in Vietnam, but at the same time, like I've told my dad, like, man, you know what? I'm glad you didn't go to Vietnam because if you did, I might not be here. You know, who knows what would have happened. So I think it's just kind of the providence of God on, on who goes and who doesn't go sometimes. But because of their service that, that put that inside of me. And then also, I grew up loving my country. My father, my mother, they are patriotic Americans. And I just grew up appreciating this place that has been gifted to me. 
And with that, I've always felt that I owe my country myself. Like mm. I don't just live in the greatest country on the planet and go, this is all mine to take advantage of. No, for me, this is something that I need to give back to something that I need to be making a better place and, and giving, giving of myself. So that was inside me. And, you know, I like to always leave wherever I go a better place after being there. So, um, I would say the, the desire to go in the military really started budding when I was in high school. And there was this one occasion I, I grew up in being homeschooled and going to a private Christian school. It was pretty strict and I was, I wasn't rebellious or anything, but I was hot tempered and very competitive. And uh, I was, a, I was a really short kid at the time. I don't think I really hit puberty too much, but I got in a fight with a kid on the basketball court. He was a lot bigger than me. And I, I punched him in the face and I got <laughs> two, two weeks of in-house suspension. And so it wasn't like a two week break. It was two weeks sitting in a second grade classroom and mm. it's pretty, it was actually pretty humiliating for me. So I'm sitting there amongst all these little kids. And what I would do is I would, I would pack my dad's soldier of fortune magazines in my backpack. And then whenever, whenever I was like, you know, done with my homework, I'd sit there and look at these warriors and soldier of fortune and just like dream away at being one of them. And so this is like mid nineties, 1997, I would say. And Mogadishu had recently happened, I believe. And, you know, there, there's still like all this chatter. It, and it's honestly kind of before the internet. And mm. you didn't have like all these veteran connected groups at that time. It was like, if you want to know what's going on in the military and like what warriors are doing, you're reading Soldier of Fortune. So there I am at like 14 or 15 years old, just eating that stuff up. And um, I, I, I can tell you to this day what made the biggest impact on me. And uh, okay, so I read this one article about this team that was doing the best ranger competition, I think in Fort mm -hmm. Benning. And these guys, they're in that competition. And I can't remember if it's 48 hours or if it was 96 hours, but one of these dudes He's in this competition and his scrotum got extremely chafed, you know, from all the wetness and running and rucking that they do. And so he duct taped his scrotum so that he could continue on. And <laughs> at like 15 years old, that made the biggest impact on me. I was like, that is a freaking man right there. I want to be like that. <laughs> so it's a hell of a thing to make an impact on you. I just I want to tape my scrotum. <laughs> Hard as woodpecker know, The only people that want to tape their scrotum are Marines, probably. You know how yeah, yeah. you know how weird it gets in that, the Marine Corps. Oh, well, so <laughs> I, that put this like I want to be an Army Ranger thing inside of me, and I graduated high school, and my parents wanted me to do like a. I, I think just a semester of, of college, like at a junior college. And so I did. And the whole time I'm talking to the army and the army was promising me a bonus and everything. And I could go to ranger school and get all that guaranteed. I think get like, I think $30,000 or $20,000 for going. And mm -hmm. 
there was one caveat for me, and that was this, that the Rangers wore the Black Beret, okay? They've always worn the Black Beret. But then the Army had this one general. I want to say it was General Shinseki. And he, he made it so that everybody else wouldn't feel left out by the Rangers so everybody could wear the Black Beret. And there I am at like 18 years old wanting to go be a Ranger, and I was like, that's freaking stupid. I can't believe they're going to take that from the Rangers and give it to everybody else that doesn't deserve it. And I was like, I don't want to go be a Ranger anymore. So after that happened, I was like, what do I do, Dad? And my dad was like, Joe, why don't you, why don't you check out the Marines? And I was like, the Marines? I don't know if I can handle that. You know, so <laughs> I'll take the Rangers all day long, but the, the Marines, oh my gosh. And I can tell you the first time I saw a Marine – I remember it as vivid as like the first time you ever get punched in the face. I was at church <laughs> and it was the end of the Gulf war. And this, this man came back to my church in his dress blues straight from Iraq. And I, okay. He was, he was this stud looking Marine and his father was a Marine. They got hit by a grenade in Vietnam. And um, I remember when he, and his father, like side by side, walked down like this little catwalk area towards my church. And he was coming home from the war. And he looked like a million dollars to me. And I was like, wow, that's a Marine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here I am, like, you know, that was 25, 28 years ago, maybe more, 30 years I still ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. It's still burned in my brain the side of a mm -hmm. Marine in his dress blues. And so, yeah, the thought of going into that was very intimidating for me, but I went in there and sat down with the recruiter with my dad and, you know, the recruiter pushed play on that VCR and started that moto tape. And I was sold like instantly. It was a wrap. <laughs> yep. That was it. And I wanted to be, I wanted to be an O three, you know, I wanted to be a rifleman and, and that's ultimately what I got. Oh, yeah, it's funny that you bring up, uh, I don't know why it struck a chord in the memory in my head. I don't think I've ever even brought this up on any cast, but the first time I ever saw a Marine, I was 16, and I I did okay academically in school, and people were telling me that there's this thing called Boys State, and it runs up at the college at Bowling Green in Ohio, and it's like, like a structured... Uh, political world where the students are everything. The students take the state highway patrol. It's all mock, but you run mock government. You do this kind of stuff. And so I got to go up to that. And I remember the opening ceremony of that. And nobody knows what's going on. You're a 16-year-old kid. You're going up there for what you think is a summer camp vacation, you know, with some buddies. And and uh, so they had the opening ceremony, and they did, you know, the Star Spangled Banner, and it was uh, the first Marine I've ever seen. So this guy was doped out in his blues, like you're talking about, and all the other services had representatives out as well. But this Marine, Jarhead, you know, classic Jarhead Marine, doped out in his blues, and he was just so much more crisp than everybody else until you looked at his face, and then he was just angry as hell, just <laughs> you know, like grimaced up the whole time and i'm like yep that's pretty tough you know that's that's funny funny how those things stick with you oh yeah especially for for a young boy oh man that that's that is everything right there 
Those guys yeah, make an man. impact. Yeah. So, yeah, so you depth in and you're a California. So you're going to go to San Diego. That's right. Yep. Went out there May of 2001. Um, so this is all, this is pre nine 11 and mm-hmm. boot camp was not the fun time that I thought it was going to be. Um, I went in there on the buddy system or buddy program with a really good friend of mine named Dan and we'd grown up together and he wanted the Marine Corps after I did. It was like, Hey, you're one of the Marine Corps. Let me check it out. Sure. Let's do it. So we left on the buddy program. And as soon as we got in there, like, and you know, you go through that, that little receiving week and then he, yeah. we got separated into different platoons and it was like, so well, much for the buddy program. Yeah. You know, yeah. it wasn't very <laughs> cool. Well, this is, pretty horrible what happened so about three weeks into it you know i'd only seen him like maybe going to chow or something and we just give each other a little like hey what's up kind of head nod that was it mm-hmm. and we're out one day and we're gonna do like an obstacle course or something and one of my drone instructors who i hated he goes recruit Hayes, get over here and he has me stand over in this parking lot and then my buddy Dan, he comes marching up to me too. And he goes, I'm taking you boys to the chaplain's office. And um, we have no clue what's going on. We're like, dude, what's going on? What, what are you here for? I don't know. What are you here for? Well, we're off to see the chaplain. And that's never a good thing, right? So mm. we go into his office. We sit down on a couch. Chaplain breaks the news to me, lets me know that or lets us know that my best friend back home, uh, Chuck Wallace was killed in a car wreck. And this is like my absolute best friend. And like he had been at my going away party and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, he said, Joe, you're going to do good. And I remember that's the last thing he ever said to me. And he'd been driving home from like playing basketball think on that same basketball court i got in a fight in and um he a guy turned right in front of him and he killed him and um when i got that news it, it was like getting smashed in the face with a sledgehammer and i i hit the floor i was inconsolable like there was nothing anybody could do to comfort me mm-hmm. and so you know, the chaplain's doing everything he can. And he made a recommendation to my drill instructors. He said, and I, I got to like, I don't look like I looked at 18. Here I am. At, I'm almost 39 years old. I look like a little baby when I was 18. I probably looked like I was 14. I was one of those ones. And the chaplain said, Hey, I think we should move Joe to Dan's platoon just so he has some moral support through this whole thing. Cause I couldn't go home to the funeral, you know? And mm. they asked me, like, do you want to do that? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And so I thought that was a cool idea and everything. Well, they had me like, you know, we'll go get your sea bag, go out to your, your foot locker and everything. And um, when I finished that, they say, okay, recruit Hayes, report to the quarter deck. And th- this, is, this is jacked up, okay? I still think this is completely messed up to this day. And... I get up to the quarterdeck and I'm like, I have like tears in my eyes. I'm just recovering like over my buddy's loss. 
And the drill instructor instructs the whole platoon to say, goodbye, recruit Hayes, you're a bitch. And they scream that to me and like F you on my way out of the platoon. And, you know, to this day, I don't know what would possess a drill instructor to like treat a little recruit like that. That's going through something like that. I, I just really blows my mind still. Um, and then like every time my old drill instructor saw me out there, they would screw with me. You know, they would just, mm-hmm. they, they'd have the whole platoon like calling me out and stuff. But it, it, the other platoon I went to was really awesome. Um, my drill instructors, I think I had one staff sergeant and the rest were gunnies. So three gunnery sergeants and they were older, more mature. You know, I think some of them were dads and they could see like, Hey, this is a, this is a young guy that's having a hard time, wants to be a Marine. He's going to be good to go. Um, take care of him. And they were more like the fatherly type drill instructors. You didn't want to cross them. You didn't want to like screw up out there, but they weren't like sadistic demonic, you know, which we, we all know the sadistic and demonic and like everybody wants to be that guy sometimes, but, um, yeah. So that was kind of my boot camp story and it was hard, you know, um, I definitely was counting down the days, but I, I did well. I, I did, I was a squad leader for a while. I shot expert and you know, I, I made, I made some good friends. Went went from boot camp all the way to the, to the fleet with some guys, so that was mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. And so boot camp comes to a close, success, EGA, SOI. Yeah. So. Tell me about SOI. So I get to SOI, and this is still pre nine eleven, and I think I did guard for like two or three weeks. I mean, platoon. For those of you who don't know, SOI. And SOI is a school of infantry. It's your, as a rifleman, it's your A school coming straight out of boot camp. You're going to go learn to be a grunt at SOI, at the School of Infantry, Infantry Training Battalion. So, uh, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so we hang around for two or three weeks, you know, hurry up and wait kind of stuff. And I believe the day we were, we, we picked up, and then it was either the, the day of or the next day, we are sitting cross-legged on the floor in our squad bay. And I think we're getting ready to go to chow or we, maybe we got back from chow and we can hear our drill instructor in the hallway outside of our squad bay. And he's screaming and screaming profanities like, you know, just letting loose. And we're like, did somebody do something? Did somebody screw up somewhere? And we don't know about it yet, but this guy's mad. And he busts in the doors and he says, we're going to war. You guys better get ready. This training's important. You're going to use it. We're under attack. America's going to war. And we're like, what? And you're SOI? Yeah. This is like our first, maybe second day of SOI. um, Of the actual training cycle. And then, you know, I remember that night, the night of 9-11, we're cleaning this cleaning the squad bay and cleaning the head and everything and i remember being in the head like we're all scrubbing on stuff and somebody had a radio and we were listening to president bush address the nation about what had happened and we're just kind of awestruck about it and i didn't we didn't see any footage of it like we didn't have televisions all over the place we didn't have cell phones that 
had any video. We had nothing. The only thing we saw was the newspaper with like a photo of the plane flying into the buildings. And that's Mm -hmm. all that I saw of it for several weeks until I think I went back home and then, you know, my home was only several hours from Camp Pendleton. So if we got a weekend off, then I could bounce there. And then that's when I saw the actual footage of what happened. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that really made all of us like take our training very seriously. Mm -hmm. And, And I think everything changed obviously across the country and all the military service and everything. But for those of us that were just going into SOI and to begin infantry school, that was like, Oh my gosh, as soon as we finish this, we're going to war, which wasn't true for all of us, but we thought it was. Mm -hmm. And that's where you need to be headspace wise anyway, even if you're not the ones that are going. Yeah, absolutely. It it was definitely good for us. And then I imagine I imagine things speed up pretty quick. You graduate from there, and then you make your way to 2-4? Yeah. Yeah, so we just hopped on a bus and, you know, drove about six miles down the road to the San Mateo, I think, 62 area, kind of the north end of Camp Pendleton. And I was in, got stationed with the 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, Golf Company, 3rd Platoon. And um, Mm -hmm. that's in the 5th Marine Regiment, which... Fifth Marines is the most highly decorated regiment. They've got history all the way back, you know, to Bella Wood, Bella Wood, Blancmont, those battles there. Um, Chesty Polar trained Marines in San Mateo. So, yeah, a lot of history with the Fifth Marine Regiment. And, of course, I had no clue about that at that time. I didn't know what 2-4 was. And when I got there we were basically on a QRF mission for the Western part of the United States. So we kept our sea bags packed full of essential gear in the event that there was another terrorist attack on the West coast. And we were conducting training operations for like peacekeeping stuff, maybe riot control. Like if, Mm. if LA gets hit and Englewood's going crazy or something, we'll respond up there and, you know, do whatever we got to do. Um, sure. Just prepping for things that, you know, a month or two after nine 11, like the, the whole idea of the unknown, it was just rampant. Like nobody knew what was coming next. Very scary time for a lot of people. So we, we did that and we, we had to be able to hop on a, like a C one thirty within four hours all the time. Mm hmm. So you couldn't go too far from base. And this, this lasted for, I don't know, three or four months maybe where we couldn't really go anywhere. But that was kind of cool. And then we did, we got ready to pump out to Okinawa with the 31st Mew. And, you know, there was talk of going to war and stuff. And I think there's probably other units maybe with the 2nd Marine Division that were going to Afghanistan at that point in time. We weren't really hearing about it. I think because the only way you're going to hear about it is like the Marine Corps times Um, having internet at that time wasn't a thing. I I had a, I had a cell phone that I could call and text with. That was it. So Mm -hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of knowledge out there floating around as easy it is as it is today. Sure. sure. So, but yeah, we got ready to pump out to Oki 
and I wasn't really looking forward to that too much. Actually, I should probably reverse a little bit in this, and um, <coughs> let me get a drink real quick. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Dude, when I talk sometimes when I'm podcasting, like, my back gets so tight, and I feel like all this tension. It's weird. And then other times I'm like, so loose. Yeah, yeah. I hope I loosen up here. Oh, you're doing fine, man. You're absolutely fine. No worries about it. Do you want to stand up and, and shake it out since we're stopped? Or are you good? Oh, I'll just bust out some pull-ups. Yeah. No. <laughs> you got a piss? No, I'm good. I'm good. All right, cool. We'll push. Okay, so, yeah, so I had a backup of, on a few things that happened to me when I got to my unit that I, I think are very valuable for others to hear, like other young Marines or senior Marines, okay? And sure. a senior Marine is obviously anybody that has been on, a, been on a deployment. You can be a PFC and you've deployed somewhere and come back and now you're a senior and all the boots are going to submit to you, right? That's the theory at least. It's like the, it's like uh, the not confirm. concrete, concrete rule, but okay. So that was the whole senior Marine thing was definitely a thing when, when I got to my unit and, um, you know, I remember, I remember like the company honor, honor man who was with me in SOI, he was a Lance corporal. I remember him talking at parade rest to privates that were senior Marines, quote unquote in two, four. And I still think that's ridiculous. So senior Marines in two, four, that at that point, nobody had deployed to war yet. Yeah. They hadn't gone to war, but like they'd gone to Okinawa. And so they, they had a year and a half left in their enlistment and they were them as a busted down private were senior to say (laughs) the honor man, Lance corporal. Which that's ridiculous. Sure, sure. The rank structure is the rank the rank structure, but anyways, it's going to be that parochialism inside the ranks, and the guys yeah. that got busted down are always going to be salty, you know. Yeah, I just I'm not saying it's right. I, I agree with you. I'm just it is what yeah. it, it is what it is. I don't I don't know how much stopping that there's going to be. So a lot of times those guys are on their way out year year left in their term, and they're salty. You could punish them, but nothing's really going to happen because they're in that short timer <laughs> against reenlisted yeah. Star Squad, and eh, it sucks to be a, a new guy in that in that situation. So yeah, so, so there was um, hang on, there was like, and I don't know if you want to cut this out or not, Ryan. Okay, but um, I'll just say it. But there was there was like this hazing culture inside my unit, and mm-hmm. there was I had heard that there was a guy that was hazed so bad, you know, when he like picked up rank, that he had to have surgeries and he was discharged because he got beat so bad. Um, mm-hmm. So that was the kind of stuff going on, and like pinning and blood stripe ceremonies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And you know those. I don't want to like get myself in trouble here, but like those don't bug me as much as the, you have to do this initiation type things. Mm -hmm. Um, Those do bug me. And I I think that's really wrong because, you know, there's Mm -hmm. definitely uh, an act. 
an aspect of friendly camaraderie with like a blood striping ceremony or pinning. Like I get that. Like that's the warrior culture that does that. I know it's illegal, but I understand it. Okay. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand is like jumping somebody into a platoon like you would jump in a gang member. Mm-hmm. And that was the I kind of stuff going on. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that kind of stuff went on. And that was that was the culture in which we lived. Well, one day I'm like, my squad leader's passing word to us in his room. And, you know, we got like 12 Marines in there. And I get this, this guy I don't even know. He comes up behind me and he puts me in a rear naked choke. And so I struggle to get out of that. And I was a pretty good wrestler. So I get out of this, you know, he had me in a carotid and I got out of it and I actually put him in one and he taps and I let him go. And so I get up from that and like my lips bleeding and I walk over to the counter and I start washing my mouth off. And the next thing I know, this dude comes back up to me. And again, the room is full of Marines and NCOs. Okay. Here I am 18 years old and three weeks in my unit. I don't know anybody. And Mm -hmm. this kid comes back up to me and he's like, all right, now let's box. And I'm going, I don't want to box you. I just, it's over. You tapped out. I let you go. That's it. And this guy, he starts pushing me and grabbing my, grabbing my blouse and pulling me back to him. And we're just, he's like going at it with me. And I'm like standing there saying, I don't want to fight you. I don't want to fight you. And he just won't stop. And nobody's, no one's intervening. So I'm like, I'm going to stand up for myself. And so I finally, I just punched him in the nose and he goes down and blood like fills up in his hands. And then he comes back up and I'm just like, I'm standing there with my mouth gaping open. Like, holy crap. I just punched this guy. And next thing I know, he's raining him down on me and he was a really good boxer. Okay. And so I get my front tooth knocked out and the duty NCO like logs it into the, into the log book. Right. I got to go to the hospital. I got to get this thing surgically removed out of my mouth. Cause my front tooth is pushed way back into the roof of my mouth. Um, so I pretty much had to have a, what's that? They kick you after you got you down. No. So he, he punched me in my mouth and then like I go down and I'm holding my face and then he's raining them down on the back of my head. And mm-hmm. you know, these <laughs> I'm, I just don't like how the leadership was and the culture that was going on there where, where it's like, where this is okay, you know, and where I, as a brand new Marine, that's excited to be a Marine and be a part of a unit where you're going to have a 22 year old corporal allowing that kind of stuff to happen. I think that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, that stuff did end, but you know, it cost me my mouth, my face, and then both me and that other Marine were NJP'd. And by the time it got up to the Lieutenant Colonel, he heard our story and he's like, well, are you guys cool with each other now? Don't do that anymore. And we didn't even get punished for it. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's some of the stupid stuff that goes on in the Marine Corps. And I think mm-hmm. it's just because everybody wants to be hard and we're trying to keep it the old breed. We look up so much to the toughness and the adversity that the 
the ones before us went through and were like, anything I can do to make myself tougher and my unit tougher, I'm going to do. So let's beat everybody that gets into our unit, you know, because we're tougher than the one next door. I kind of feel like that's what was going on. And, you know, I don't, I don't hold any, any grudge against anybody like me and that guy we made up, we became buddies afterwards. And, you know, I love all my seniors to this day. And, but, you know, to speak honestly about some of the stuff that was going on that, that I see as a problem that hopefully isn't going on anymore. Yeah. That's definitely one of them. You know, I I think that the Marine Corps and, and, you know, after I retired, I went to school and did the thing. So I was away <clears throat> and now I'm just now getting back over there on the base and giving some pit talks and some PMEs. And I think they've come a long way in understanding that um, it works better to bring them in under the wing and mentor them rather than bring them in and beat the shit out of them. Um, and, and there's tons of Marines in my estimation, uh, in my own experience, and then, you know, in talking to Marines that were great war fighters and then got such a sour taste in their mouth over things like that that it was like one and done tour and it's like we got a retention problem it's because we could clean up some some of that kind of stuff and then really foster a family environment and i'm not saying take all the hard away you still got to get hard and be hard and stay hard right but you don't have to do it that way and i think that they've come a long way in understanding that and then uh and my hopes are that 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 kind of behavior is not not happening anywhere obviously um you know and we've both been there to different places and it doesn't take that to lead an effective team squad or platoon matter of fact i would venture to say that those team team squads and platoons that are really dealing with hazing issues and and incidents of of belittlement and just really um choosing that path I'd, I'd venture to say that there there's no way they could be as tight and as lethal as you know the antithesis as as the latter um so no you're, um, you're absolutely so. right i mean because what it does i can tell you truthfully that it that culture carried over into my generation then of marines that were up and coming and what we were looking forward to was well we can't wait till we get our boots so you know we can break them in like like how we got broke in and not that we did those things and you know the the attitude of i'm a senior marine they're a boot they have to do whatever i say that definitely carried over to all of us and and some of that's good for sure but you know i didn't i didn't make all the right decisions as a young corporal when i had my junior marines and i can re- i can tell you like i remember I used to like to go and check everybody's room in the morning, you know, and make sure my Marines were clean, make sure they're dressed and shaved and all that kind of stuff. And I loved it when I would walk in and find that they hid their trash in their closet instead of taking it out to the dumpster. Right. Because I would chuck that thing across their room and throw it against the wall. And I remember chucking like a bowl of ramen noodles across into a wall. And I had this young Marine, from Chicago who he's a young Hispanic kid. Okay. Grew up in a tough neighborhood. And, uh, after I did that and I'm chewing him out cause he tried to hide his ramen noodles that he didn't clean up from the night before. He's got tears rolling down his face. And I found out 
after um, after I left that he had lost somebody close to him back at home. And here I am being a total jerk to him, you know, not being that mentor, that leader that he needed in that time that he can reach out to and say, hey, Corporal Hayes, just so you know, like my aunt just passed away back home and I'm having a hard time with this. And I'm thinking about maybe getting a, a flight back to see her and make the funeral. Like that's not where my mindset was at. I'm all about, I'm going to go and break one off in these guys and get them ready for war. But it's like, no, you also need to nurture a good relationship with these guys because they have lives outside the Marine Corps. They have things that are going on way back at home, just like I did when I was in boot camp. And my buddy goes, and mm-hmm. when my buddy was killed, it's like, I've got something back at home. And then, you know, here I am piecing together. I guess that I was being like those jerk drill instructors that I had, right? I mean, I didn't know that he had lost somebody back at home, but that's the kind of stuff that I think our young leaders need to be aware of. And really any leader out there needs to know like your team, those underneath you, they have things going on besides what you require of them every day. And you're not going to get the best out of them. If all you care about is what you want, you have to care about them as a person. And that does not come from that caring does not ever come from you wanting to be the best and better than the next guy right? It, it really comes from a love of that person. You have to just, you have to honestly love your guys and it has nothing to do with you ever climbing the ranks and being meritoriously promoted and being recognized. It has everything to do with something deeper inside of you that says, I love these guys. I'm going to care about them. I'm going to treat them the way they ought to be treated. And if it requires of it, I'm going to jump on a grenade for my guys because it's the right thing to do, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you, I had, I had some leaders like that. I had some really good leaders. Um, I had others that were not like that, but yeah, I, I got to see. I think it's in, um, I have a sim, you know, my, my, myself is similar to that. I didn't always have the best leaders. Um, you can still learn from a bad leader. You can learn what not to do and what what they do that negatively impacted you to such a degree that you remembered it and then never do that, right? And then the good leaders that you have, you take from you take the good from them, right? Like I'm a big proponent that nobody's perfect, but if I look at ten leaders, I can probably find a bunch of great things different about them to take. And I can probably find one or two on all these great leaders, bad things that I do not like that don't vibe with my style, and I'm going to strip those away. And then you just slowly through your career chisel away, learn, mature, chisel away, learn, mature. And uh, like the point of communication like this in this day, we do have the internet. We do have the ability to give you information. Boom, right now. All you have to do is pick it up, right? And so we can maybe, you know, stimmy some of that and, uh, and get it the maturity level and, and, and some of the mindset level change just by doing this kind of stuff. And it's after actioning things that maybe people like yourself and myself may have messed up as corporals. Um, doesn't mean we have to continue to mess it up at that rank forever. Um, right. Um, yeah. And, and some of these things, you know, recalling them in my, in my brain, I've been able to pass on to other Marines that have gone in after me because like presently I've been teaching 
high school, Sunday school at my church for the last 12 years. And I can't tell you how many young men have gone in the Marine Corps because they sat in my class and they wanted to go and be mm -hmm. a warfighter. And I've, I've had the opportunity to guide some of these guys along as they are small unit leaders in the Marine Corps and tell them like, look, you take care of your men. You love your men because one day you may be out on the streets of some third world country and one of your men takes a bullet for you, you know, mm -hmm. maybe not for you, but you watch one of your men go down and pass away, die for his country. You're going to want to have, you're going to want to have treated him. Honestly, the way Jesus would have you treat him. And, and I would mm -hmm. say that he is the ultimate leader. If you look at how Jesus led his disciples, what did he do? Did he sit there and boss them around and demand like, you go over here. You you go pick up this. Hey, you worry about the chow. No, he didn't. The the best image of Jesus in his leadership, we see that he was a servant leader and he washed his disciples' feet. And, you know, his disciples are like, I'm not worthy that you would wash my feet. Mm, mm. You know, and can you imagine, can you imagine if you as like a private first class had your squad leader saying, look, hey, young PFC, come here. Let me, let me make your bed for you. I want you to watch me make your bed. I want you, I want you to watch me clean your weapon for you. This is how I want your weapon clean, buddy. Okay. I want you to do it like this and do it right. But like, I think that would communicate more love within the ranks. And you, and you think about like what that PFC is going to tell his mom and dad back home when he's calling back to Massachusetts or something from, from California, like, Mom, I got a really nice squad leader that's like, this guy really takes care of me, you know? He gave me a ride down to here to go get something squared away with my phone or my car or whatever. Like, I just remember being that 18, 19-year-old kid that's like 10 o'clock at night talking to my mom or dad on the phone with tears in my eyes when like, I don't know what I did, but I'm stuck in this thing called the Marine Corps. And it, mm -hmm. that's hard, you know, like I think many of us have questioned what am I doing here right now? Because this is not what I thought I signed up for. And I, it has a lot to do with good leadership. So yeah, that's my, yeah, I think, I think that's not the Marine Corps per se, but the individuals that you are, um, associating with, let's say at that point. I always say that the Marine Corps is a perfect instrument of, of uh, political resolve and, and war fighting and death. I think it's perfect. Uh, but once in a while, you get those people in there that are in the wrong spots, and they can affect it, um, making it, making war fighters like yourself. And you still did okay, even after, you know, even after having all of that said and done. But um, yeah, yeah, there's no place for it. I never had a place for it. Matt was in my squad. He could tell you straight up that I didn't play that game. Um, our dynamic, we had a little bit of a different dynamic because it was like when I took over the squad, it was very short succession to be deploying, at least on that one. And so it was like there was, there's no, there was no fuck around game time. It was like I just got you know a bunch of boot drops as combat replacements because we get shifted into the into into a, a a a bigger deployment, let's say. And we got 10 days before they leave. And so it's like, well, you're going to mess with them? You, you knock their teeth out. That's bad. 
you're hazing them. Well, you're going to hurry up and haze them right now. And then this is the guy that's covering your back as you run across the street and country. I mean, if you think about diminishing their their more their morals and their morale and 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 and, um, and hazing like that, it's like this is the person that you're expecting to cover you. It doesn't make any good logical sense to me, and it doesn't make sense. And when people say, well, well it bonds them together and, and, and it builds the team and, and things like that, like I'm not saying there's no truth to that, but I'm saying. Try the other route. Try the route that Joe's talking about and be the mentor, be the older brother, become attached where they do good, you do good, they feel good, you feel good, and the reverse of that, uh, and watch that team and see what happens. And, um, yeah, so very important. Those are key topics. Mm. I also I learned from some of those mistakes, and I think I'll probably talk about a really good lesson I learned. Um a little bit farther on, but um, yeah, I've not been the perfect leader. Not afraid to say that. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I nor anybody at that matter. Nobody's done it perfect. We'd have replicated it. So, yeah. So moving on from there, uh, rough entry into two four, and and you kind of you you kind of like you said, calling home to mom, saying, "Man, I don't even know if I I was so excited to be here. Now you know, they're beating the shit out of me. I got you know my teeth are messed up and." I just, I didn't, and I didn't do anything. I don't even understand why it happened, and, and that's desperate. So, so what happens from there? How does this, uh, how's this get overcome? Yeah. So, basically, just carry on with it. You know, keep on going. And I think after after some months of being there, things kind of died down because the the newness of us boots being there was over. So we deployed to Okinawa in. June of 2002 and we're there we do some training you know we're out in the jungle and you know good times boring times sweaty times whatever you want to call it <laughs> um we hopped on ship went around like canopy training when you're over there was you doing some real jungle training jungle training yeah for sure yeah definite yeah. something that legit. I missed out on I didn't get there good for you actually you, oh yeah, is that how it is? <laughs> you don't you don't want to go to war in the jungle. I'll tell you that much. Um, yeah. I would take I would take Ramadi over the jungle for sure. I Check. man, I've been to. Well, I went on a mission trip in Papua New Guinea several years ago, and there was guys fighting in Papua New Guinea. It's pretty close to Guadalcanal, so very similar terrain, and. Mm. I did a like a 10-hour hike out of this place where we were at with this mission team so that we could get to a place where an airplane could pick us up. Oh, my gosh. I would not want to be fighting World War II in that kind of environment. Like, people go there to die. It is absolutely hell. Um, give me the desert every time. So, yeah. Too bad we don't have a choice in that. One question. Oh, yeah. Did you have to tape your scrotum? I never got the pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't check that box. But hey, there's always tomorrow. You never know. So <laughs> never know. I have a roll of duct tape in my truck in case I need it. Yes, there you go. Always, always handy. Um, yeah, so Okinawa and 
we floated around to a few different countries, did some training, got to train with the Korean Marines for a while. Um, Guam, Australia, Hong Kong, went to Iwo Jima. To that, I mean, uh, that's striking to share out of any of those. I've heard great things about Australia. Australia, we were there for three days. I had like two days of guard duty and one day of liberty. So sweet. Um, I can tell you that if you go to McDonald's in Australia, they don't know they don't know what they're doing, and they're going to put beets on your hamburger. So oh, beets. I have beets. Yeah, and you know Australia is a pretty big mess right now, and the beets on the hamburgers yeah. might have something to do with it. I'm not sure. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> The honestly, the most notable thing that I would say that I got to be a part of on that float, that you know, that tour was going to Iwo Jima, and mm. we talk about that. Yeah, so I was in a track company, and we splashed off the back of the ship in our Amtraks, and did an amphibious landing on Iwo Jima, on the exact same beachhead that those Marines did in World War Two. Mm, wow, and. You know, there we are on that black sand. And we got to climb all over that that island in our platoons. And my platoon commander, Lieutenant Schickel, he did something really cool with us. He, um, he had all of these Medal of Honor citations printed out. And mm-hmm. whenever we would get to a bunker, he would have a, one of us Marines read a citation. And mm-hmm. it was just really neat going around and doing all that. And we got to go up Mount Suribachi, took a platoon picture up there. I want to say I left, like there's these pieces of wood and stuff on these posts, and everybody was like leaving their rank stuck into mm-hmm. it, and I got to put my rank on that. And um, so I got some sand off the beach. I got some sulfur off of the top of Mount Suribachi. And then I found a, I found a spent 50 cal projectile that I have to this day. It's this rusty... 50 cal round and man that was awesome and we got to go there's all these caves you know you know the japanese like tunneled under the whole island Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. those caves are still there and we got to go explore those they were like have at it marines have fun and we're down there with flashlights and stuff just like crawling on our hands and knees through these through these japanese caves it was the time of my life like and I knew it was special. Here I am at like 19 years old. I knew this was very special, but I still didn't have, I didn't have combat experience yet. And I still didn't have a greater historical understanding of like the magnitude of that place and the mm. lives lost. Like I knew it was a costly battle, but I, I can tell you as a 38 year old guy versus being 19, my appreciation mm. of Iwo Jima is so much greater. So I, I only wish that I had more like up here and in here about that place to see it. Mm. Like I've hey, you're back one day. Oh, I would love to, I got to go to Bella Wood and Blanc Mont several years ago over in France and two of those battlefields. And I, I can tell you, I truly appreciated every bit of it. Hollow ground. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, I did. Um, I got up real early in the morning, and and I'll tell you, a lot of Marines don't know a thing about Blancmont. Everybody knows about Bella Wood. You know, probably the most famous Marine Corps battle ever, where we got our name Devil Dogs and everything. 
Well, so, okay, you guys, you guys are six Marines, right? Yeah. So you wore the French Forger, mm-hmm. as, as did I. And um, so the Marines got the Forger, the 5th and 6th Marine Regiments got it because we, we fought and won the Battle of Bella Wood, the Battle of St. Saint Mihail, or San, yeah, San Mihail, and then Blancmont, and Blancmont was the last one, and then after that battle, World War One was pretty much over. Like, that broke the back of the Germans. And it was this insanely bloody battle where the 5th and 6th Marine Regiment lost thousands. I, I would say, I wish I knew the numbers, but thousands of casualties. It was hell. And I got to go to that battlefield and I woke up really early in the morning. I was out there before the sunrise. <clears throat> before the sunrise, excuse me. And I PT'd out there. And I, I smoked myself on that battlefield. And mm. I picked up shrapnel on that battlefield. And I got that to this day. And I, you know, all that to say, I wish I had that appreciation level back at Iwo Jima because mm-hmm. that is some hollow ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an it's amazing experience. I can't imagine. I've never been. I would love to go. I would love to go in the future, especially Iwo and some of the other ones. I've been to, you know, Williamsburg and 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 some of the uh, Gettysburg and some of the some of the places here. And um, just like you said before, I know appreciation. I know understanding of that. And then, uh, like, I go to the you know the Museum of the Marine Corps now in Quantico, and see those exhibits, and that means something different. You know. Um, once you've matured, once you understand, of course, being there too, and 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 losing men and 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 sacrificing, um, things things change the way you see them, and um, and um, you know, I probably most notable. Go go ahead, go ahead. Let me recommend something for you to do, or for anybody listening that's a marine, or if you just have an appreciative appreciation of history, go to France. And go to Bella Wood. Okay, there is a there's a man there. His first name is Giles, G I L L E S. And this man, he's probably like in his early sixties now. He was our tour guide when we were there, and he has lived in that area his entire life. And since he was a young boy, he's been hunting artifacts in Bella Wood from World War, from World War One. He's been picking up helmets and Eagle Globe and anchors and dog tags, all sorts of stuff. He absolutely loves the Marine Corps. And he, he's this French citizen citizen. So because of his love and devotion to the Marine Corps, he, the commandant of the Marine Corps, I want to say probably eight or ten years ago, designated him as an honorary Marine. Okay? And that was my tour guide. And man, walking around Bella Wood with that guy, oh my gosh, it just absolutely priceless. And But he's, he's affordable too. So if you ever want to go check out a battlefield, I would go there. It will blow your mind. Mm. Uh, just take a lunch. Uh, that's the only advice I give you because I didn't take a lunch. And it's like, it could be eight to 10 hours of battlefield touring. And and probably don't take your wife. Okay, that's the other piece of advice <laughs> I'll give you. 
Check. Yeah. Check. But yeah, yeah, yeah dude, you would love it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it sounds like choices, not chances, and days of battle has to do it on the grounds of Bella Wood. We could go film it there. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying, man. We'll, we'll go, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay. All right. And, and real quick before we move on, um, Joe, if you don't mind, I, I want to touch on a little bit of, of what was said before um, and, uh, and really, and, and really hammer down on, on what we were saying about uh, leadership. We talked a little bit offline uh, beforehand. We got a little bit into it here. And uh, as far as the hazing goes, guys, um, I, I stand behind. I, I stand behind Joe Hayes on this one hundred percent. It's unnecessary. It's not needed. You don't have time for it. It it serves zero purpose. And if you are in the active duty Marine Force or, or or military in general, greater military, and you are using your time to demean the morale and spirits of young Marines and young sailors and young airmen and young, young soldiers coming in that have their entire lives in front of you and have waited for this time, waited for this day, their whole life, they're checking in and they're, they're ready to be part of something. And then you're just demeaning them and, 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 and putting them down and not mentoring and picking and lifting them up and training them. Then you are doing it wrong. Hands down, hands down. There's no excuse. There's no exception. And uh, we really just wanted, you know, I really wanted to come back and and double down on that. And uh, Matt, you got something to say on that at the team leader level, even? I mean, now I understand the corporal's got to be a little bit more of the the instructors and the ankle biters to get people shaped up and things of that nature. And there's a difference between shaping up Marines and getting them in shape to fight, and they're and, and absolutely demeaning somebody. And uh, you know, in Joe's situation, have him thinking, what did I do? I, I've dreamed about this all my whole life, and I don't, I don't know what just happened. Um, that's not where we need to be. I know that we're better than that, and I know that we're doing better than that now. Joe, what do you got? Yeah, well, like, take Gunny Bassalone, for instance. Number one, you think Gunny Bassalone was worried about hazing his Marines or teaching them the machine gun? I think he's teaching the machine gun. And I, I think those guys were soaking up everything he had to say to them. And, you know, two things here. Number one, Gunny Bassalone didn't do what he did on Guadalcanal when he won the Medal of Honor and he killed the enemy like he did. He didn't do that out of a hate for the enemy. He did it out of, a, out of the love he had for his Marines. And then secondly, those those Marines around him, their hearts were torn in half when he was killed on Iwo Jima, okay? And he came back to Iwo Jima because he loved his men, and he didn't want to be in the rear with the gear. When he came back there, and he was hit by that mortar round, and he was killed, his Marines, I guarantee you, didn't remember, oh, Gunny Bastillon, the Medal of Honor recipient, got killed. No, it was Gunny Bastillon, my dad. My big brother got killed. Mm. You know, mm. that's who he was. He is not the legend that he is today because he won the Medal of Honor. That Medal of Honor was a byproduct of who he was on the inside mm. and the leadership mm. that he displayed to his boys. So, yeah, that's what we got to be. And every single, you know, everybody is a leader. Everybody has a sphere of influence. And every single one of you out there listening, if you're in those ranks, Maybe you're a cop, fireman, Marine, Army. I know we've kind of gone the Marine Corps way on this. 
But yeah, there's someone in another service branch listening to this. Everybody has the opportunity to be that guy. And maybe you weren't him today or yesterday, but you can be starting right now. And hey, make that change because I'll tell you, and I'm sure Ryan and Matt will tell you, we've all made our mistakes and we all just got to pick it up and go, all right, well, you know what? Next time I'm going to do it this way instead. So, hey, get her done. Get it on. Get her done. Hey, there's nothing against hard training, gents. I don't want you to get this confused. We need to be hard. We need to be Oh, yeah. We need to be hard. I'll say it three times. It's important. We need to be hard, but we do not need to put our people down. We need to be lifting our people up and being hard as a unit together, not as individuals. You will not win the game of war as an individual, and I don't care how good you individually are at it. So we beat that horse. Let's move on. Back to 2-4, the Magnificent Bastards. Where do we go? Okay, so we don't go anywhere. We stay in Okinawa, unfortunately, because the Iraq War kicks off, and all of 5th Marines, the 5th Marine Regiment goes to Iraq to you know work the way all the way up through Baghdad, topple Saddam Hussein's statues, eliminate the Iraqi regime, and... 2-4 is now renamed by the <laughs> the members of 2-4 as No War 2-4. And we're stuck on ship in the <laughs> Pacific Ocean watching the war on like CNN. So and you have no control over the fact that no. the rest of the Marine Corps is now making fun of you. And, and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing at all. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you who hated it the worst was our senior Marines because they all got stop lost and they couldn't get out of the Marine Corps when they were supposed to. And they got like extended, you know, three, four, five months to stay on ship and float around in the water. So, yeah, we were kind of all hating life at that point. Um, didn't really do a ton of things. Actually, I want to say we might have done Iwo Jima in that time period because we basically <laughs> did like two floats out there, you know. And honestly, it was all good stuff. Got to go do some cool things go some cool places mm -hmm. but uh, it's interesting that you that you say that because uh you know we're getting to the point where we've we've interviewed a lot of the guys now and um, multiple of them found themselves at some point floating on a big steel box watching the war unfolding on afn wondering yeah in the hell they were not going over to the war <laughs> right and uh, that's hard yeah that's hard as uh uh as a serviceman in general, as a combat man in general or woman in general, to be sitting there ready to put your life's work to the practical application and ready to get some. And instead, you're doing gator squares in the middle of the ocean watching AFN and watching your brethren take it to the enemy, just wondering, like, are we, we going to miss this whole thing? Like, and you know, at that time, you don't know how long it's going to last, you know, so you're every deployment was the last deployment, you know, so on the way home, if you're not getting some, you're discouraged and crushed because you're like, you didn't get the chance to, you know, to show your skill, yeah. let's say. And, and, and some guys missed and people it. That, uh, yeah. A lot of people that we talked about that, that, you know, felt that exact same way. Um, in particular, we had on, um, you know, a while back is John Wayne Williams yep. found himself on a ship somewhere watching AFN in the chow hall and, cussing under his breath wondering why the hell they were sitting on a ship yep. instead of getting over there and getting after it and uh 
it's a lot of guys. It's funny that the particular a lot of Marines, which we interview mostly uh, Marines so far. So anyway, not to not to detract, but so not too much action, and you're out there kind of on standby. Yeah, and so that that comes to a drawdown for us. Um, I want to say May of 2003, and we go back to Camp Pendleton. And so we get back there. I've got a girlfriend that I'm pretty serious about at this point in time. She's actually stuck by my side remotely from California while I'm in Okinawa the whole time. I was over there for almost one year, just a few weeks shy of a year. And so we're in a relationship you know, spend a lot of money on calling cards and stuff. And <laughs> so things between us are <laughs> things between us are getting more serious and I'm definitely falling in love at this point in time. And after being back a short period of time, they tell us you guys are going to get ready for another pump to Iraq. And so the Iraq thing had drawn down and it, and it wasn't this raging war like it became it was peacekeeping operation we were being told like you're going to go over there and win the hearts and minds and you know kind of be like a security force police department type of mission um mm-hmm. so we were definitely training hard for it you know doing things like mount training you know urban combat kind of stuff we're going on all of our hikes doing doing stuff with but at battalion level and so anyways we go over there to in a full workup though yeah we did a full workup so we we got back from okinawa in june of 03 and then february late february of 04 we go to iraq so (laughs) we're back you know like eight or nine months and we didn't have much intel on where exactly we were going we heard we're going to Ramadi. We, mm-hmm. I didn't know the difference between Ramadi and the Ramada Inn. Okay, um, <laughs> the, the term, the name Ramadi meant nothing to me. Meant nothing to any of us. And the intel reports we had was that the the army had been there, kind of holding the fort down since the invasion, and their their casualty rate was very low. It wasn't that bad. So, mm-hmm. you know, we all want to go get some. We want to get that gunfight, that action. Everybody wants their combat action ribbon because the rest of the 5th Marine Regiment all had it, and now it's our turn to go get our car, right? So that's the mission for us. So we go to Kuwait. Okay, so I'm now a fire team leader. I've been promoted to corporal, and I'm in 1st Squad, 3rd Platoon, Golf Company, 2-4. And we go to... We go to Kuwait, we train there for like two or three weeks and we're getting ready to go in Ramadi. And what we're going to do is hop on like, you know, seven ton trucks and drive our way in from Kuwait. Mm -hmm. So pretty much all the way through the country. And I got a couple, couple of guys on my team and and their characters. So let me introduce them really quick. I got one of my closest friends, Jimmy Gentili. He's my saw Mm -hmm. gunner. He's, um, He's a Marine from Kansas City, Missouri, and he, he's an Italian, okay? He, he's a, I shouldn't say he's an Italian. He's Sicilian, very proud of it, always proud of it. 
And Jimmy was just a really good friend of mine. We were roommates in Okinawa the whole time we were there. So mm-hmm. we've been buds for a long time. And then I have two junior Marines. I have uh, PFC Derek Halal from Indianapolis, Indiana. And I have private or PFC Pete Flom. And Flom and Halal were like best buddies. And the best way I could describe them would be Starsky and Hutch. Okay. <laughs> These guys were just, they were goofballs, you know, and, and they just loved each other. They're always happy, always doing funny stuff, you know? And, and I got a total kick out of it. And like, you know, sometimes they would do things and I had to like crack down on them and be like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe you did this. But sure. They were just really, really good natured, fun loving Marines. And both of them, I'm only like five foot nine and a half. Okay. Both these guys are like six foot four or something, six foot five. <laughs> Big old tall Marines. Solid. And Halal was he was twenty four years old. I was a twenty one year old corporal. And then Pete was he was only eighteen, I won't maybe nineteen. So but despite the five year age gap, they were just really good buds. And um so the, the four of us, we had pretty good chemistry within our team. And they would do some funny stuff. One of the funny things that I, I want to throw in there was, you know how you know how disciplined the Marine Corps is? Of like, you can't put your hands in your pockets. You're going to march everywhere. Well, we're over there in Kuwait. And we're living in like this little hooch of a squad bay or whatever. And we had to march to Chow the Chaho was pretty good ways across whatever camp we're at. I think camp victory or something. And, right. and we had like March in formation and we weren't allowed to wear gloves or beanies. And it was like, it was cold and windy there in February of 04. <laughs> well, all the army, those guys, they're like wearing parkas out there and they're beanies and scarves and you know, all that freaking comfort gear. Right. And these guys, they got lawn chairs, the army, they got lawn chairs out there. I think that we're probably seeing like barbecues at their squad bays or whatever. And, and they've got bicycles of all things that they would ride to chow. And the funniest thing one time we're coming back from chow and we're in formation and halal hops out of formation and grabs this army dude's bike and rides this bike all the way back to our hut. And it was just the funniest <laughs> thing. We're just, dying laughing in formation as he's riding his bicycle through the sand. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff, you know, that I'm sure you guys are familiar with about how funny and hilarious Marines are, man. It's always shenanigans. Yeah. Always. So Marines get you through some really shitty stuff though. They really do. You know, you have to have you know that. The humor to the, Oh God, if you're a Marine and you don't even have a sense of humor, bad time. To yeah. You. Yep. Bad times await you. You gotta, you gotta laugh. Okay, so after doing some training there in, in Kuwait, we're ready to go into Iraq. And my platoon was, we were going to support an air wing unit that was also trucking up farther. I want to say into Baghdad or an area not far from Ramadi. I don't think it was Baghdad, but sure. it's like this sixty-six vehicle convoy of all these pogues that are air wingers and my platoon third platoon assisted them 
with convoy security. So you got one mm-hmm. one platoon of grunts with them. And so we're on our way and, and we're in like seven ton trucks with all of our gear stacked in there. And we're, we got the vehicle sandbagged. And this is before all of the armor technology coming out, you know, in probably like 05, 06, 07. Mm-hmm. So we're, yeah, we're on like sandbags and steel plates. And, you know, we're, we're definitely concerned about IEDs and just kind of a interesting story about how much common sense I had in my head. Um, we're on our way up there and I'm very concerned about the IED threat because I'm like vehicle number four from the front and then there's like 60 vehicles behind me. And so... Mm-hmm. Me and my buddy Jimmy and my fire team, we're both ex- extremely intent on locating these things called IEDs that we've heard so much about. And each one of us, we've got, we've got our heads stuck over the side of this seven-ton truck, one of us on either side. And we're looking for these things. And like the rest of our squad in this seven-ton is like racked out in that thing. And we're just, you know, sitting there like, honestly, like kids, like looking for these things. And, but it was out of a sense of care, you know, and, and duty. And so, anyways, like out of the blue, we go over this little tiny bridge that's like over this little dry creek bed. And sure enough, I look down, I see this object, and I kind of follow it as I pass it by. And I was like, that looked like six 155 millimeter howitzer shells stacked up there together. And I was like, I think that was probably an IED. And I tell my squad there, I was just like, IED there's an IED back there and I'm, I'm going nuts and we stopped the convoy and he's like Hayes you had better be right because you just stopped a 66 vehicle convoy and there's like a colonel in this thing you better not be screwed mm-hmm. up but sure enough yeah it was like six 155s stacked up together with debt cord and everything and we were stopped there on the side of the road for like six hours because of this until we got it detonated um mm-hmm. I know they learned how to do that quicker, you know, later on, but yeah, Iraq, Iraq early days, uh, or Afghanistan early days, EOD in the war, you could be sitting for six hours. You could be sitting for 20 hours on a near side, far side cordon, because we didn't have the number of texts available for the amount of IEDs that were being found. And, you know, you fast forward 15 years, you take it in the 2010s push. We had direct support EOD attached to the squads sometimes. And so um, we can't, we have come a long way as a, as a war fighting uh, organization, understanding that better, learning that better, and then simplifying and added, adding systems in place to, um, to really do a better job than we did uh, early in the war. That's a fact. Yeah. So good thing is nobody got hurt and we got out of there and, you know, I can tell you like that was, that was one of those times where I remembered I'm really tired. Like we were just up and awake for so long on our way into Ramadi. And Mm. I think the, that initial stress of like, this is a combat zone. I am condition three. Or no, I was conditioned one with my weapon and just kind of the gravity of the seriousness of the situation and then seeing an IED and then and looking at all the people that are looking at you. Mm-hmm. It was an 
exhausting experience. And when There's I finally about that, like, real quick, yeah. you said something um, just a minute ago. Um, something that uh, when I was in Fast Company, I started out in Fast Company, and I had an excellent command there, excellent training environment, excellent work environment. A uh, lot of O3 leaders, uh, which always didn't happen in Fast, right? So, um, and uh, my platoon sergeant said uh, something. He he mentioned that exact thing. He said, uh, "Listen up, gents." He would always say, "Hey, we about to pop smoke. You know, we're about to roll out." And uh, he was big into martial arts, and you know, at the time, you got you know the McMap things coming about, and then they're doing whiffums and tie-ins and such. So we're fighting one day, and whatever the tie-in was, I'm not sure how it how it applied to the McMap training per se, but uh, the lesson uh, to take away was to never sleep on a movement. And he went into depth of why you don't sleep on a movement, and I'm not going to go into the depth that he went in, but let's just uh, break it down real simple. You're on a movement. You're asleep. Three-quarters of your squad's asleep. You have a 60-something truck convoy, and that IED doesn't get spotted, and it blows the vehicle up in front of you or your vehicle or the vehicle behind you close proximity, and now you're waking up to that chaos, not knowing where you're at on the map, not knowing what the nearest cover, nearest city is, not associated with your terrain. And if you're a hitter out there right now or you're one of the guys that's uh, training up to go, take this message back to your team, take this message back to your squad, and treat it like that in training because, gentlemen, you do not want to not have SA on the battlefield when you get hit. And so that was a, a tie-in he gave me back in the day. And I remember he made it such a he made it such an imperative thing to know at, at a young age that it impacted me that I had trouble sleeping on any movement, even in training when I knew it was safe and we're headed to the rear. I wanted to be the guy on the up-armored 7-ton coming out on a 210, from 210 out onto Highway 17 back to Lejeune. I wanted to be the guy that knew exactly where the cars were coming because in the off chance that uh, something catastrophic happens, even in training, um, you need to be aware and you need to be able to help because it's going to be you know, a mess. So um, if your guy's listening to this, don't be sleeping on movements, guys. Stay awake, stay attentive, um, have your essay, your situational awareness. So I'm glad you brought that up, and and uh, I wanted to mention, you know, mention that and bring that in because it it couldn't be a worse situation and more chaos than boom, you're hit and you didn't even know how and you don't know where from. Right, and the funny thing was like the emotion inside of me when I saw it of like I hope I don't get in trouble because maybe this isn't an IED, but like. Yeah, you got to have the courage to speak up. As they say, if you see something, say something. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, nobody wants to be wrong about one of those things, especially with like, oh my gosh, there's a high-ranking officer in this thing. Like, yeah, too bad. You think there's something wrong? And that goes for anything. Like when you get that th that feeling in your gut, like something's not right right here. You do something. Like you... You make an action. I don't action. think it's for no reason. Yeah, your body, your body's squared away for a reason. Like you got to trust it sometimes. Yeah, and your brain's smarter than you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So convoy gets to its location unimpeded by the triple stack one five five due to Joe Hayes calling it out when he sees it. I like it. Where do we go now? Yeah, so we get to Ramadi 
and my platoon, my, my company, golf company, goes to the combat outpost, which is in really like the heart of the city of Ramani. And they had our battalion broke up into three different locations. So we had, we had Hurricane Point, and we had the combat outpost, and then we had the snake pit. And so basically we had like H&S weapons at H&S and weapons at the, I'm sorry, this is going to be a boring part. Anyways, all those guys are somewhere else across <laughs> town. Good. There's Fox company at the snake pit. And then echo and golf are at the combat outpost. And I think it has the term combat outpost for a reason. Definitely. And so like echo company, they had their AO and then we golf company had ours. Right. And, Basically, they go one way, we go the other way. And so, and then, you know, we get, we get positioned on this schedule of operations where like one day, everything lasted for 24 hours. 24 hours, you're on, I think that's right. I hope I don't sound like a complete moron right now, but you would do night ops, you would do day ops. Then you would shift to security where you're doing security po- patrols and machine guns, towers, mm-hmm. and then you're doing mm-hmm. 24 hours of QRF. So mm-hmm. it's like a four-day schedule. And then I think every other, every eight days, you're supposed to have 24 hours off. And that kind of went out the window a little bit later on just because it got so high-paced. Spicy. Yeah. It got a little spicy. So, but when we got there, I remember the, the army, they're pretty much on their way out. And those guys, what they were doing was they're rolling around in Bradley tanks around the city, mm-hmm. making contacts and they'd be, they'd be out for 40 minutes and then they'd be back. And I don't think they were doing a lot. I mean, I know like what those commanders were thinking. They were, they were doing one thing. Okay. But Whatever they were doing, if there's one of those guys listening to me, I don't know what you guys were doing. When we got there, we hit it on foot. And Mm -hmm. we are jumping in people's backyards at 2 in the morning, and we're looking for the bad guy. And, Mm -hmm. And we completely changed up everything the Army was doing, you know, to this, like, extremely intense... And and on, honestly, I would say, like, if you watch the difference between a Marine Corps drill instructor running his platoon versus an Army uh, drill sergeant, you will see the difference of what happened in Ramadi with that changeover. Because it was not like, <clears throat> you boys get up here and, you know, time to get dressed. We're going off to chow. You know, it was like knife hand, like, get up right now. And it, everything <laughs> just everything just snapped when the Marines landed in Ramadi. Mm-hmm. so yeah so our tempo was was very fast and we were constantly on the move and we wanted action like no other and was it kinetic from the very onset no it was not so it was like it was kind of boring at first and we go on patrols and nothing would happen so the the biggest thing the biggest impact made on us was one of our platoons they had a few Humvees out with Marines in them. They were like, they're just driving down the road and they get hit by an IED. And mm-hmm. 
this IED was a bicycle stuffed full of explosives. And that thing exploded. It hit one Marine in his thigh. It hit another Marine in his eye. And he had he lost his eye and it took out like part of his brain. And then another Marine got hit in his, his lower jaw. And it removed his lower jaw from his face. And they're all still alive today. And you know, my, my buddy... Corporal McPherson was hit in the lower jaw. And Corporal McPherson was this man that all of us looked up to. He had an, a personality of invincibility about him where, like, everybody just looked at him as, like, a super squared-away dude that was, you know, when you go into combat, you're like, this guy's definitely going to make it. And this guy, I don't know about him, but... But I know this guy's really locked on and squared away, so nothing bad will happen to him. It was kind of like one of those things. And sure. those, I, I didn't see him after he was hit. Like he was just medevaced straight from there and gone. And, mm-hmm. and he's alive and he's had many, many surgeries. But from the reports I heard, like after he was hit, one of the Marines went down the street and picked up his lower jaw and put it in an MRE bag. And that went off to medical with him. And then he spent several months like recovering with having his tongue exposed out of his mouth. Like this man has been through the ringer with the recovery mm-hmm. from that. And I don't know, but I don't know if they got the guy that blew it up. You know, that's, that's rare to get the guy that did it. And that was a very demoralizing thing that happened to us because they took out three Marines. You know, they severely scarred a man's face for the rest of his life. And the kind of chemistry that we all had together, especially with Corporal McPherson, was like, man, you just took out one of the good ones. And I'm not saying anything mm-hmm. negative about the other guys. They were, they were guys that we loved dearly, but like, he was a funny dude and just had, he had it. You know what I mean? He had it. Yeah, the it factor. And when that happened, that, that freaked all of us out. And I just remember like the sick feeling in my stomach, like hearing that report and then going, oh, it's my turn to go out there, to go outside the wire. Like we're playing for keeps now. This is real. Mm-hmm. We are not in training mode. They mean to kill us. They mean to rip our face off if they can. And that was a very sobering thought for me to have. And like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of like sobering, like when you're in SOI and 9-11 happens, like that transition in your brain of like, whoa, somebody's going to get killed doing this. So, yeah, that changed. And, you know, we we kept on doing what we did. Let me ask you this. uh, Um, Do, how do you as a leader... Uh, handle that situation with um, picking up your team and saying, hey, I mean, is it that talk? Hey, they're playing for keeps and they're going to kill us if we don't kill them. So I know this is sobering. I know this is rough, but it's time to wire tight and lace your boots up, boys. We aren't going home and we're going back out in an hour. Like, I've had to have those talks. How did you handle those talks? Honestly, very similar to what you said. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Like telling my guys, like they're playing for keeps and we've got to be on our guard. We've got to go out there and we've got to spot these things before they hit us with them. And, you know, never backing down from it. Like it was scary to go out there after that happened. And I remember starting to feel the, the change in how my, how I like physiologically reacted to things as I'm on foot patrol and I'm walking by a bag of trash and, and walking by it with a flinching feeling like anticipating an explosion as I walk by this thing. But dealing with that, but telling my, my Marines like, well, it's our job, you know, and we're going to do it. And the other thing, like I, I also talked to my Marines about their spiritual welfare too. Like that was always important to me because I'm a Christian mm-hmm. and, I have a relationship with Jesus and I, I had a, I had a really good talk one night with my buddy, Derek. It was like two in the morning and we're on an ambush and we're like, we're in the soccer stadium area and we're side by side laying down in the prone and it was like, Hey dude, you know, we're chatting back and forth and do you have any like religious faith or anything? And he told me like, yeah, I was, I'm a Christian. I was raised a Christian by my mom and dad. And when I was, when I was younger, I gave my life to Christ. And I, w- I was very curious to hear like what he had to say about that. Cause I share the same faith. And, and I sure. think that that boldness for, for us came from some, for, for some of us, that boldness did come from faith. And I can tell you that for sure. me, mm-hmm. my faith was a huge part in like my willingness to go out there and put myself in front of gunfire. Mm-hmm. And like my buddy Derek, he told me, he said, yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And if you're familiar with Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, he says, he quoted it to me pretty much like, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of your works, so that no one can boast. And he verbalized to me that he's put his faith in Jesus to forgive him of his sins and he's counting on Jesus for everything. And that was cool for me to hear from one of my guys that I'm leading because, you know, the military has chaplains for a reason. And that reason is there, there's a spiritual aspect to everything we do. And, and that spiritual aspect is not just so that guys can like go to the chapel on Sunday because it's like their thing to do. Like, no, chaplains play a big part. And man, you can read you can read citations about chaplains getting the Medal of Honor because of what they're doing on the battlefield. That's a that's a very sacred duty what some of them have done. And the founders of our country and the framers for some of our military structure, like they recognize that that chaplains are vitally needed and that faith is an integral part of what we do as warriors. And I recognize, maybe I'm going down a rabbit trail here, but I recognize that the Lord is a man of war. Jesus Christ himself is a warrior. And this spirit that the three of us are sharing right now and that the listeners are experiencing and that has drawn you here because you have that warrior spirit inside of you that wants to, it's not that you want to go kill some somebody because you're cool with violence. No, it comes from a spirit of justice 
you want righteousness to prevail over wickedness. We don't like that. We don't like that they flew those planes into our towers and murdered 3,000 innocent Americans. Okay? That's number one. I don't like that in Afghanistan, some freaking moron of a father can sell his seven-year-old daughter into sex slavery to a 62-year-old man or something. Screw those guys. I want to go at those guys. Okay? Let me loose. And that, that desire for all of us to, like, dirt nap that dude comes from our warrior spirit of righteousness and justice. And that ultimately comes from God himself. God has put that inside of us. The Lord mm-hmm. is a warrior. The Lord has created the spirit of the warrior. It all comes from him. And the greatest warriors of all are found in the word of God. People like David, people like Gideon. Moses was a warrior. Joshua was a warrior. So many of these guys. I mean, Peter, he's a warrior. He chopped a dude's ear off right in front of Jesus. And, man, that's hardcore, like chopping a dude's ear off. <laughs> these guys, hardcore. <laughs> they had something down in their chest that was, like, just wanting to get out. And um, so, anyways, I, I tried to culture that with my guys and – yeah, that, that was like a big part of me as a leader. Like I wanted to I wanted to represent Christ to them and and go forward and face the battles of war as a warrior like would biblically. Let me take a drink real quick. Sure. And and while you're doing that pretty biblical place that you're actually setting up to do this uh this warring uh, as it turns out for the last two decades so um yeah man uh, i would i would i would uh i would say that that there's a lot to it and um it's cliche to say there, there you know there are no atheists in the uh, in a foxhole you hear that coming up you hear it in the movies and things of that nature but i can tell you in my experience sounds like same in joe's and i know in matt's and i know in froze over here uh I think uh, I think the greater American population would be would marvel at the amount of these conversations that are had um, in the smoke pit, in the chill zone, and the after the firefight hooch when guys are just sitting around. And sometimes it's boredom, and other times it's just like what you're saying is something that uh, is spiritual about that job. There's something that's uh, you know gripping and especially when you're um taking life you know on a daily basis let's say or attempting to take life on a daily basis and attempting to save lives on a daily basis seems to be one of those topics that's ever present um ever present for sure hey like what we were doing out there was good it was righteous okay now, all the political stuff about, like, America's real reason to go to war, you can argue about that all day long, okay? Sure. But the Marine versus the Taliban or ISIS or Al-Qaeda, who is the righteous warrior here? It's the Marine. It's the soldier, the airman, the sailor. Because, like, we go out there to do good. We go out there and... We will be awarded the highest of all honors if we die 
so that someone else may live, right? Mm. You get the Medal of Honor when you die so that someone else may survive and live on. However, our enemy does not believe and live like we do, and they don't fight and die like we do. Instead, our enemy's highest honor is when he kills the innocent and in doing so dies himself. That's how he's getting his 72 virgins and going on to paradise. If he can go kill Marines and he can die in that act, then he gets the honor and he gets the paradise. It is, we are two diametrically opposed forces. We could not be more far apart than we are because mm. we're fighting for different things, completely opposed and dying for different things. And we can definitely stand upon the word of God and upon our constitution and the declaration and say, what we are fighting for is right. What they're fighting for is wrong. And it is right to shoot these dudes and kill them wherever we may find them. It is right. Nothing wrong with it whatsoever. And I know like the PTSD aspect of all this, like some guys experience guilt for killing on the battlefield. Okay. It is a necessary emotion. Well, it's a natural emotion, I think, to experience natural. That, that guilt, but it's a necessary act for you to do that killing. The killing has to be accomplished. If that killing doesn't happen, then righteousness loses and evil triumphs. You know, so even though so much has been like erased by what we've seen happen in Afghanistan, for instance, this last summer, so much has been erased. However, so much good has been accomplished too. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we can't look at things just in the terms of like, well, we gave the Taliban our weapons systems and we lost all this ground. It's like, yeah, well, regardless of who, who is still alive over there, who has been found out. Okay. We still did right over there. Our men and our women that fought and died there and fought and lived there still did good. They still Mm. did something that mattered. They still impacted somebody for the rest of their life. And you know what? Those good people in Afghanistan or Iraq for that matter, that, that got found out by ISIS or the Taliban and they were executed. You know what? You did give them a better life. Okay. They were going to live. They were going to live in oppression, whether you were there or not. The fact that you were there gave them a piece of freedom. They give them a taste of Mm. freedom. And Mm. we don't know what that taste of freedom is going to do for them in the future. Maybe Mm. it will, it will spawn another generation to rise up and something else happen in that future country. I don't know, but like, the righteousness accomplished in these foreign lands will never be erased. The sacrifice that we have made will never be undone. It was a righteous mm. and pure sacrifice all the way. Kill. Kill. Love it. All right. Yeah. So take me for there. We're still in Ramadi. We're still in the heart of it. You've had this you've had this spiritual talk with uh, with the guys in your team. Um you feel particularly good about where your guy stands, uh, where your gentleman, where your Marines stand spiritually, and 
there's a psychological shift that says we're going to go get these guys. We're good, we're sound, and we're going to go get these guys. Right. Check. So a few weeks in, in early April, um, some of the tempo kind of changes out there. Um, the battalion had, I want to say, one or two KIA um, from IEDs or from RPGs and mm-hmm. some, some enemy gunfire. And there's some small, like, sporadic engagements that are popping up. Um, and then the morning of April 6th, 2004, it was, it was a day like any other day, except they said, Hey, third platoon, you guys are going to go to the government center, provide some security because we're getting reports of a, a bunch of armed men, hundreds of armed men possibly storming it. And so you guys are going to go out there. You're going to satellite patrol your different squads there at different, you know, mm-hmm. every half hour, another squad's going to leave the base. Everybody's going to take a different route. You're all going to eventually get there and link up and provide security. And so, um, you know, I should say this is, I, I'd gotten a letter in the mail from my girlfriend several days before this. And she mm-hmm. tells me, that her Sunday school teacher named Karen Watson from, she was a, she was a sheriff's deputy and she was my wife's Sunday school teacher. Like when she was a little kid and then this, this lady, she decided to go be a missionary and she was in Iraq up in Mosul and her and like her, she was in like a four man missionary team. They got ambushed. And what had happened was that was all Zarqawi. What's his name? I forget his first seven names, but uh, yeah, Zarqawi. Ben Zarqawi. <laughs> ben, yeah, Muhammad something Zarqawi. He had put out an order, you know, to basically start the jihad and kill the infidel, kill any Westerners or coalition forces. So Karen Watson, this member of my church, she got caught up in that and she was gunned down in an ambush. Uh, three missionaries died. I believe one one survived it. But so my, my wife writes me and tells me that. And that was like mid-March. And things are starting to click up a little bit over there. And then April 6th, the morning of, we're told like, you're going to go to the government center. There's all these all these bad guys potentially coming out there. So we all head out there and we're all on foot. So we've got like, I carry eight magazines and a hand grenade um, I'm the only Marine in my team with a grenade. I, I think that was a bad call. Like some of the intelligence, like going out there, they, they told us like, if you guys get hit, it's going to be with, by a four to six man terror cell upon attack, they're going to withdraw. So you don't need to carry 15 magazines because they're not going to hit you that hard. Mm-hmm. That was what we were thinking and expecting. I carried eight mags. Most guys carried six. And team leaders got a hand, got one hand grenade. I think that if you had an M203, you're carrying like maybe six to eight um, 203 rounds. We carried, we had an AT4 with us. We had um, our, we had a small gunner. So like they broke up weapons platoon. 
and distributed the guys from weapons platoon to all the platoons. So we had, we didn't have a weapons platoon anymore. We had four yeah. rifle platoons, but we had a young man, uh, Moises Langhorst who carried a small out there. He had a small and he had a M nine pistol patrol in Ramadi. It, it's horrible actually. No, um, it's horrible for that situation. I it's, mean, uh, if you need a small, to be that guy, you have to have extra large pants. Yeah. And balls that you're toting around. But it's insane. Yeah. And what call is that? Is that brought down by your command at a higher level? Is that the squad leader's call to say, hey, let's just, uh, this is the loadout? Was it on the individual guy on what he chose to carry? How the fuck out? It came from higher. I don't know how high it came from, but they didn't want to lose the weapon systems that we were like, you know, they didn't want to get rid of weapons platoon and get rid of all the systems with it. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. had the, we had the mortar pit still on base, but then there's guys taking just manhandle foot patrolling a 240 golf on foot. Like that's a heavy mm-hmm. piece of machinery to be carrying around on foot. So we didn't lose those machines, those weapons because we broke up weapons platoon. We kept them with us and that phased out later on. Things like carrying mm-hmm. a small phased out. Um, and I, I think that, I don't know where the decision came from to have them implemented still, but Check. I think there's always going to be adjustments made on the battlefield because lessons are learned. And those sure. lessons are always hard lessons. Um, mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll see what I mean when we get there. But so... We head out that morning about, I don't know, 9.30 or so. And I'm out there with my squad. We had, oh, and this is a, this is another thing. I have, I'm in an, a 12-man squad, but we're 11 men on April 6th. And one of our, one of our saw gunners, we have three saw gunners for three fire teams, right? One of our mm. saw gunners has, a, has chow hall duty today. So he's cooking chow. And we lost a saw gunner and his weapon. Okay. So we have two saws and we got on patrol. We get out there. There's someone fires a pot shot at us. Like from a, a, a ways away, we tracked down an Iraqi policeman that was like hiding on a rooftop. It was really funky, shady dude. Right. And we handcuffed this guy we're going to possibly call for a Humvee to come get them to come pick him up. And then all of a sudden one of our, our third squad, they're taking gunfire and they're about a click away from us. And so we're like, you know what? Ditch this Iraqi police guy. We've got to get over there and help this third squad out. Cause they're, they're like in the fight and we can hear machine guns, some explosions every now and then. And it's like, it's time to rock and roll, you know, this mm-hmm, is it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we start hoofing it towards them and we turn down this one street and it's a ghost town. And that was one of those, it's one of those times in my life where like my gut told me something was mm-hmm. wrong. And so I've got Derek Halal. He's in front. He's the, he's my point man for my team and the squad and my platoon sergeant, Damian Rodriguez. He's, um, I got a platoon sergeant and a squad leader with me and my 
platoon sergeant, he's a staff sergeant. He's like, keep going, Hayes, push your team, push your team. And so we're, we're moving down the street and it's deserted and it feels really screwed up. And I keep looking back because I just know like this doesn't feel right. And then all of a sudden, just from every direction we get opened up on just this, the crack of the AK 47, right? Just that snapping, popping sound over your head. <laughs> and we're on sidewalks and paved streets with like brick walls all around. So there's nothing to take cover behind. All we did was we took a knee and started shooting back at wherever we thought the sound of the gunfire was coming from. And it was, it was impossible to pinpoint where you're getting shot. Like we didn't see anybody, but we mm -hmm. had hundreds of rounds being shot at us. And what I figured out later on after the fact is, you know, these guys are smart. They are shooting out of a room and they're, they're, far back in the room and you're not going to see the muzzle flash. So mm -hmm. I never expected that. That was one of those things that like combat taught me. Oh, I'm not always going to see these guys when they're shooting at me, huh? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we all, we've all taken a knee. We're returning fire. You know, we've probably everybody shot off 15 to 20 rounds and we pick ourselves back up. We're like ceasefire and, no, none of us are hit. Like, amazingly, we're all good to go. And so, platoon sergeant, squad leader, they go, hey, uh, you know, team two, team three, on me. And they start clearing a house. And I've got my team, but it's kind of, my team's broken up now. So, my buddy Pete, the big, tall, funny kid, him and Halal are best friends. Pete's the radio operator for the squad leader. So, he goes with the squad leader and for some reason, my buddy, Jimmy Gentili, one of my closest friends, he's a saw gunner and he goes with the squad leader. And so I got, I got Derek Halal and I've got Juan Linares and Juan was in from a different fire team. And the three of us have M 16s. And I, I think Juan might've had an M 203. I know somebody eventually had an M 203. So, the three of us are sitting there and they're like, you guys just watch our six as we're clearing out these, this house or two. And so the three of us are out on the street corner and we can hear explosions. We can hear like gunfire. We can hear yelling. And it's, it's like Marine Corps drill instructor yelling. And my platoon sergeant was a drill instructor and a very intense one at that. So they're hooking it up. Okay. In there. And the three of us are like, well, this sucks for us because we're not getting any. So we're looking around and I've got an ACOG on my M16A4. I didn't have one of those short, cool carbines like you guys probably did. I had a big 20-inch barrel. But um, we're looking around, see a guy probably 100 yards down the street from that direction we just come from by an intersection and he's got an AK 47. We engage him. He ducks in a building and I let, I've got a headset that I'm connected to on my squad leader. So we can talk like team member to squad leader, but that's it. I let him know what we've got. And he's like, and I said, can we go down and get after this guy? And, and I'll tell you like bad, bad, bad idea, Joe. 
um he's like yeah feel free go ahead so i'm like there's a he's by this blue car you know it was only like 100 yards away we'll go get this guy and then come back to you and mm. so yeah so that's what we did and i recognize i made a bad call i made a bad request don't ever split your forces never split your forces so yeah we did i went down there with those uh two other marines we get onto this intersection where we'd seen this guy with the ak and next thing i know there's these houses are stacked up like they usually have two stories and the top story has a parapet wall where it offers great cover and concealment for the enemy and it's concrete or brick next thing i know there's a guy on either side of the street on two mounted positions um, firing AK-47s at us. And we're just down there at this intersection with no cover and concealment. And so the three of us were at this intersection. We're spaced apart, you know, by maybe four meters or so. And we're mm-hmm. returning fire at these guys in these elevated positions. And... They keep popping up, spraying, and hopping back down really quick. And we're just going like from, t- from target to target very quickly. And then we've got guys like that we can see farther down the street in another direction. They're shooting at us from behind buildings. And then I got guys, I got guys down another direction at this intersection. And I can see two dudes with an RPK. One's in the prone and one's like his assistant over him. And they're firing at me. And I've got rounds impacting right over my head into a brick wall. And so like that was really close. And then the next thing I know, um, I, I engaged these guys with the RPK. Like I jammed across the street and pied across this... Um, hide around this brick wall and engage them a few times until like they disappeared. I didn't see him anymore. And then one of these guys from, from an elevated position pops up and sprays with his AK and hits Derek in his leg. And so Derek, my big funny guy, my bicycle thief, you know, funniest guy in the squad. Um, he's down and, what, it, what had happened was the round had shattered his femur, okay? And there's not a lot of blood or anything. And I'm like, you're okay. You know, I grabbed him. I pulled him out of the street over to the corner of the sidewalk. And I'm like, suck it up, dude. Keep going. And and um, because of the, the like lack of a lot of blood, I just didn't think it was that bad. Mm-hmm. So I call for a corpsman and they actually the rest of my squad sends a corpsman and two other marines down to me they they send uh daniel tapia he's the marine that i yelled at and cried when when i threw his top ramen across the room um you know just to let you know know like yeah 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 you chew these guys out you treat them like garbage guess who's coming to save you in a gunfight right mm-hmm Daniel Tapia, what a stud. Um, my corpsman came down there, and and Carlos Ortiz, another team leader, good, good man. 
And they got down there and Halal's in a lot of pain, but he is a stud. And what I had him do was I had him give his M16 to my corpsman and my corpsman gives Derek his pistol. And so Derek, mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. he is shooting his pistol at these elevated positions as these guys keep popping up and and he's sitting at nine point because his leg is shattered or yeah or? yeah so yeah. and the corman's like working on him getting his trying to get his leg patched up and derek's still returning fire he it was awesome mm-hmm. yeah and uh, but i remember and i think you and i talked about this on the phone ryan um it was during that time like the gunfire was just very oppressive and it was not stopping. And these guys kept pouring in like what mm-hmm. was happening was these guys kept getting dropped off by cars and they're stacked up 200, 300 yards down the road firing at us. And we've got nothing to hide behind, no cover, no concealment. We've got a wounded Marine. We've got elevated positions that are, that are hitting at us. And situation just kind of unraveling here so mm-hmm. i remember derek told me he goes he goes hayes don't let me die out here and i said i was like don't you call me hayes i'm corporal hayes and i it's a funny thing to say in the midst of combat to like correct somebody on rank but i saw that i was starting to lose control and i mm-hmm. wanted to hang on to everything i could hang on to and i was not about to let somebody start you know, cross that rank line as I'm trying to maintain leadership out there. I was like, no, you still have to call me corporal, even though you're shot right now. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's maintain, wrong. Well, you have to maintain discipline and, um, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes it can be that statement like, Hey, this isn't over. We're not out of here. Let's stop pretending like it's over and we're out of here. Um, Exactly. We are far yeah. out of here. This is this is just getting started. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want anybody to start feeling like it was hopeless, but like mm-hmm. it didn't feel good because mm-hmm. we all wanted to be in combat, and then all of a sudden we realized this isn't fun anymore. We want to get out of this. We want to get Derek finished up, like getting healed here, and I don't want any more AK-47 shot at me right now. Like I'm over mm-hmm. this. And that, that was like, that was a big mind blow because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we just got everything we had ever been training for and asking for, you know, and now we're like, get me the heck out of here. So there we are. We're dealing with it. I have, we've got an AT4 with us. We have an M203. Um, I, th- I believe Linares. He's firing his 203 at some of these elevated positions, not having any luck hitting him. And then I go, you know what? I'm going to grab that AT4 and I'm going to shoot one of those cars with it like 200 meters away. So I've got that sucker up. I'm making it ready to launch. And I told, I told them to start walking Derek back down the street towards this T intersection behind us. And I wanted him out of my back blast. So they're, they're at like two man supported carry with Derek. You know, his femur shattered. 
I'm getting ready to shoot this rocket. And then all of a sudden, one of those dudes, again, from this rooftop area, pops up and sprays. And Derek goes down. He's already being carried by two guys. And he's hit in the head. And he's down. And Mm -hmm. at that point, everybody dropped prone. Me and Carlos, my other team leader, we're we're on like the left side of the road. Derek and the other Marines and the corpsmen are on the right side of the road. All we are is separated by probably 20, 25 feet. And we're all firing now. And Derek had taken a round through his helmet into his head. And he's gone. Mm -hmm. And that was like, it was horrible. I mean, know he had he had told me don't let me die out here Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what happened so Mm -hmm. so we keep shooting and the enemy shows no signs of slowing and letting up i'm communicating to my squad leader he's like he's asking me for the status on derek and I, was, I say, Derek's KIA. Derek is KIA. And he he's like, repeat that, repeat that. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it wasn't clicking in his head. And then he is, mm-hmm. my squad leader, is then reporting the KIA back to the co- company command post. And you know who's reporting it? Is Pete Flom, Derek's best friend. And that's rough. It's, you know, it's hard stuff, man. And you never get over that. I'm never going to get over that. None of us are. Over it, I think, and we can talk more about it. I think that you learn to manage it. Yeah. Or you don't learn to manage it. And um and it I can tell you, like that's why that conversation I had with Derek has always been so important to me. That when we were mm. a few days before this in that soccer stadium at two in the morning and he's telling me about his faith in Jesus. When he was killed, it was horrible, but I knew where he went. I know that he went to be with the Lord at that very moment. And mm-hmm. as horrible as it is for us down here on the ground, like we all have to die someday. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to die. He died sooner than we did. Okay. So that's the big picture. And the best part about it is that he knew Jesus Christ. And Derek mm-hmm. had made a decision to ask Christ to come into his life and forgive his sins. Because we're all we're all sinners, man. Like we have all screwed up, we've all violated God's law, and he was he was called to recognize that, and he did. So, like, mm-hmm. in spite of this stuff that was going on, that was a comfort to my soul at that time. Because like, it was horrible, and and in the midst of of losing him, I'm like, 
I'm going to try not to lose anybody else here. And so we're still getting shot at. And the next thing I know, there's a grenade explosion on this street corner up, fr- up in front of me, like 45 feet or so. Mm-hmm. And the explosion hit these like telephone or power wires and they're sparking and going crazy. And me and Ortiz, we're like shoulder to shoulder in the prone. We go, oh my gosh, they got grenades. And then the next thing we know, there's a grenade bouncing up to us. This Somebody just hucked it around the corner at us and it's rolling right up to us. Mm-hmm. And so this thing, we had no time to go anywhere, do anything. And the way we were positioned, I knew Ortiz was going to get it worse than I would. And so it was like just this flash of like, I got to hook my buddy up. I just reached across him with my left hand and we're both just hunkered down with our heads, with our heads down on the ground. And it was like waiting for forever. And it finally mm-hmm. blows up. And when that thing blew up, man, it rocked me. It was like, like an earthquake hitting me. Mm-hmm. Just every, everything inside of me was just like shaking. And when I got hit, I remember I pushed myself up off the ground and I looked down and my, my left hand is just all bloody. And what I did was I stood up right there, like on this street sidewalk area. And I stood up and I've got my M16 in my right hand. And I just started walking back to this T intersection, like, like all dazed and confused, you know, like I'm pretty sure. Well, I know I got some TBI out of that blast and because I had like all these concussive symptoms that happened to me after, after this blast. But I'll tell you what, man, I am so thankful to God for so many things that happened in this firefight. But not one of them is that the enemy, like God protected us from the enemy that day in spite of the loss of life that we did have, because those guys could have come around that corner and had all of us after that frag. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a wide open target for them. And for some reason they didn't do that. They could have, mm-hmm. but I was, yeah, I was completely exposed. I had shrapnel that had gone through my magazine. My, I don't know if my weapon ever went off, but I had a double feed and I couldn't clear it because my hand, my left hand was so messed up. And I had, what I had was shrapnel that went through my, basically like the center top of my left hand and broke a bone in it. And then I had, I had a piece go through my left bicep and lodge up against my, a nerve here in my bicep, as well as an artery. And then I had a piece hit me in my left shoulder. And, you know, that piece in my shoulder and then that piece in my bicep, those could have been deadly blows to me. Like Mm -hmm. if it had hit an artery that high up in my bicep, I could have been done. Or this one that hit my shoulder, you know, it hit, it hit some good muscle tissue. But, like, what if it had instead entered my armpit and gone into my heart or something? And so I was, look at how God rescued me that day from, like, the little things. And, man, he had his hand upon us. Same thing for, for Ortiz. Like, he got it pretty bad in his left hand. And he's his left hand was like really mangled from that grenade. It looked like a pound of hamburger. Um, 
but he's he's doing good today. Mm-hmm. He was bleeding profusely after this happened. And so, anyways, what we did was we all pulled back to this T intersection behind us so that we only had, you know, front, left, and right to, to cover. Mm-hmm. And we still had Derek that was in the same position as he fell. Um, now about, I would say, 20 to 25 meters in front of us. And we're calling for, we're calling for support. All right. So now we're down at the T intersection. Uh, things are coming undone. Derek succumbed to his wounds and is laying 25 meters ahead of you. And take it from there. Yeah. So both Corporal Ortiz and I were both wounded in our left hands. We are all continuing to engage the enemy. We're, we're watching three different directions. The enemy is relentless, uh, still shooting at us. Rounds are snapping all over the place. And I'm communicating to my squad leader. You know, we have now two wounded, me and another team leader. We have a KIA. And we want out of there. I've got... My Marines are telling me, they say, Corporal Hayes, we need to get out of here. We need to go. Mm-hmm. And and I got to, you know, time is going by here. We've been in gunfire now for probably a good hour. Because mm-hmm. there, there's times where it's like it's hot and it's cranking. And then there's other times where it's, it's like lulled down. But we're still, mm-hmm. we don't want to hop up yet. And then like. There's, there's kind of like almost this talking guns thing going on between us and the rest of our squad. Like we hear them pipe up and crack, crack, crack for a while and we're, we're down and then they're quieted down and then we start up. So it's just this very, and are you, It, it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, I know we're all good marksmen, but I am not, I am not the guy that's going to tell you, yeah, you know, we smoked all these dudes over there because I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I'll tell you, like, I was told because actually I get medevaced out of there because of my injuries. And I was told later on that there was like over 30 bodies of the enemy in that area that was attacking our mm-hmm, squad. Mm-hmm. They estimate that there was over 60 to 70 of those guys against 11 of us. Mm-hmm. Um, they were clearly outnumbered. Obviously. They were obviously outnumbered by the 11 Marines, <laughs> of course. That's why they didn't kill no. you. They're just hucking grenades and running. <laughs> um, yeah, so... You know, I'm confident that we were getting hits. I'm not confident that at 200 meters we're getting headshots. We're, we were not. Um, and then, you know, I personally have seen the impact of my rounds at other times and seen someone get hit and keep on running. And unless you get that really yep. good shot placement, head or center mass, you're probably not going to stop somebody in their tracks. And that's, yeah. I can tell you, like, that's been hard for me to deal with over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Because, uh, yeah, I would like to know that I smoked a bunch of those guys that were shooting at us. But I don't. And I think that's also the honesty of that kind of separates people from others. Like, because we've, we've all heard those guys talking that maybe you don't even really know who they are, but they're talking about all the combat they've been through and all the dudes that they smoked. And for those of us that have been there and done that, um, if you hear somebody talking about how many people they personally shot over in combat, you're probably listening to a liar. Um, mm. And you, you know, you listen to the guys that went through Vietnam and they're like, yeah, man, I've been in a lot of firefights, never seen the enemy. And that, and that's a reality. They're hard to see. Mm. They're, they are good at what they do. And th- some of those guys, sometimes we don't give them enough credit for the gunfighter that they are. But a lot of those guys do train pretty hard and for those guys are warriors. for a long time in their life. And all they think about and dream about is killing a Marine. Like if they could do that, that is the coolest thing in the world. So yeah, they're good. And, and from a much younger age, much younger age than 18 when you're joining the Marine Corps. Oh right? yeah. Um, these keep, yeah, we um, had keep the training and, and sometimes in some places, uh, documented, well-documented that they, take these kids these kids are six seven eight years old they're clearing a house with a sig and inside the house uh are criminals deemed to die by the by the hands of their executioner and so instead what they'll do is bind these guys up blindfold them and send them in this house and part of these children's clearing operations is desensitization uh training and they're going in and shoot this guy in the head and boom, he goes over, and that's real training right there now that they got at seven, eight, ripe years old. And then, you know, you're six, seven years of that before you're 14, 15, 16, and then blending in with a population to come attack us. And our 18-year-old has boot camp plus three months plus a workup. Never killed anybody in his life. Yeah. And we manage. We do well. Um, but to But to pretend that these people don't know war... They know war. They know war. They know all of it. They know all of it. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're sitting there slugging it out, and my my men are like, we got to get out of here. And they're right. We do. But we were not about to leave Derek behind, and we were not about to medevac him ourselves. So my decision was to stay put and to keep, firing like we were doing and we were running out of ammo and your idea is what hovering down on Derek you're not letting anything happen to him you're going to you're going to see this one through and is that is that your thought process it was and I've been I'd been thinking now after being hit and everything and him passing away I'd been thinking about what was going to be the result of this firefight and I'd already thought about like I'm not going to see my parents anymore. I'm going to get killed here. Um, we're all going to die here because I can, I don't see us getting out. And I'm not going to leave him behind either. So I was, I was preparing myself to give my life on this battlefield because there was nothing that was going to pry my squad or my team there away from our fallen Marine. We don't leave him behind. You know, and, and I can tell you that's like, that's why it really ticked me off, like what we did with Afghanistan, because I had the resolve 
my and me and my men had the resolve to stick around over our fallen brother, but you know our politicians don't have the resolve to essentially do the same thing over all the blood that we've spilt in Afghanistan. All the promises made. I was like, no doubt. What does that say to future? Um, what does that say to future generations of helpers to the Marines? What about the next country we go in? I'm sure the Terps aren't going to be lining up at the door to hurry up and serve for us. They're saying, no, you left everybody you ever served with. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that's a it was dev that's a devastating move. And there's several service members that feel some sore way about that, but um. But your team have the resolve that the U.S. government seems to have not had uh, recently, and and you held that point. And so, how long is uh, you're, you're an hour and some change in? How long is it until you get some help there? Probably close to two hours. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As it's extremely hopeless, I told all my guys, as the ranking Marine there and the guy leading on the ground, I said, everybody you better start praying to God right now to get us out of here. And I was literally shooting my weapon and praying like at the top of my lungs to God, like screaming to him to save us, help us kill the enemy and get us out of here. And my men were doing the same thing. Like we were, we were freaking scared. No doubt about it. We were in fear and we didn't want to die there. Nobody did. And I can tell you that from my lowly place in the prone position, sweating, bleeding, being on the edge of vomiting because of the concussion in me, that God heard my prayer. And he listened to us, and he answered us. And it was not too long after we started praying that we had Cobra helicopters flying overhead, and they started making an impact down there. And Mm -hmm. that was like, that was the coolest thing. When we saw two Cobras overhead, it was like, okay, we're going to be all right. We just got to hold out a little bit longer. I know that feeling. And then (laughs) the angels are coming in. Yeah. And you could see that little turret that like moves around, you know, wherever the pilot's looking. It was like, yes, finally. And then we heard, like heavy guns off in the distance, like the thump, 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 thump of a 50 or Mark 19. And we knew the Marines were on the way. And sure enough, they were. So we started like yelling out. We, we would see Marines like flash by this alleyway that one of the ways we were looking down. And we just started screaming out, Marines, Marines, because we didn't, I didn't have a flare. I didn't have smoke. I didn't have any of that stuff. And had you and I didn't did have, you throw your grenade, the one grenade you had at this point, or you still have that? I still had that. Gotcha, gotcha. So I mean, we're we're worried about fratricide at this point because we mm-hmm. don't want to get lit up by our buddies. But <clears throat> everything worked out. Um, first platoon of Golf Company came up to us. Uh, they were led by my company commander, Captain Bronzy, now Colonel Bronzy. And they, they stacked bodies from the outpost all the way to us. And they were, you know, the enemy tried to ambush them so many times. And first platoon and Captain Bronzy just freaking smoked those dudes out there. 
and bulldozed and said, we got a mission. Yes. Like they got it on for us. And it, it was just the, the coolest thing for me. Like I have heard him, my company commander talk about it. And for me just to hear his perspective on what they did to come get us, they came to get us. And that is just so mm. special to me. Like, Mm-hmm. Those Marines mm-hmm. risked their lives to come save us Marines out there. And that's just so special, man. And like they did that cause they loved us. And my buddy, um, my buddy, David Walter, he's a contractor down in South Texas. Now mm. he was one of the first ones up to me with, um, Todd Bolding, two other Marines, Todd Bolding, um, he was killed several weeks later after this fight. Um, but man, just the greatest of guys coming up to us. Like my buddy David, the one saving me, he was my roommate for a while before we went to Ramadi. And just mm. the funniest guy doing some of the gayest stuff you've ever seen, you know. And I, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure he listens to this. And everybody that knows David knows that he's just constantly doing funny gay stuff. But man, what a <laughs> what a war fighter! Like him leading his. So how Decton filed comes? I mean, you holler out, they hear you, or do they see you from another angle? How's that work out? Yeah, so I I think they they heard us screaming. We were like screaming, Marines, Marines, and I think we recognized a few guys as they were running by this alley, sure. and then we started screaming names, and sure enough, they came down our way. Um, so they get down there, and then. Captain Bronzy, he comes up to me and he, he's like, what do you got, Corporal Hayes? And I say, I got a dead Marine, sir. And he like, I heard him talk about it. He, he had a hard time processing that one. I don't think he knew mm-hmm. yet until I told mm-hmm. him. And he was like, okay, like check, you know. And he like, he's looking ahead. And he goes, and, and we had this Humvee roll up with like a 30 cal on it. And he's like, all right, let's go get him. And so me and Captain Bronzy, we run forward and we got a 240 giving us some suppressing fire. Mm. And he and I grab, grab a hold of Derek and we bring him all the way back to this intersection that we're at. And then mm. I kind of helped help put him away um, and get him loaded up and um, said a prayer over him, like said, said goodbye to him, you know? And then they're like, you got to go to the casualty collection point. I'm like, no, I don't. Let's get mm-hmm. Let's freaking go. And there was some, there's some army colonel there. I don't even know who he was, but I guess, he was somewhat of a big shot and he was like, no, that Marine is get him out of here. So yeah, I got sent to this casualty collection point. And when I got there, it's just kind of like a block over from where we're at. Um, I'm there and there's a few other wounded Marines from the squad that we had originally been trying to reinforce. So I've got a buddy, Jeremiah Letterman. He's been shot in the stomach. He's had an RPG like whiz by his face and hit him in the nose. 
like talk about a close call, you know, mm. there's a couple other Marines wounded. And then I see my buddy, Jimmy, my, one of my best friends, he, you know, he's my saw gunner. He was with the other half of my squad in those houses. And Jimmy is sitting down inside of a Humvee and his entire face and head is wrapped with gauze. And all I can see is his big Sicilian nose sticking out of this gauze. Okay. <laughs> and you know, I've, I've told it to Jimmy like that many times and he'll, he'll laugh when he hears it. But that, that was really the only way I recognized Jimmy was by his nose. And what had happened to him was he had been firing in the prone with his saw and one of the bad guys was like behind him in an, maybe an elevated position. I'm not sure. And fired his AK 47 at him and it hit Jimmy like underneath his right ear. And it, it went and severed his carotid artery and it exited his nose and like upper mouth area. Okay. And it dragged all the teeth on the right side of his face out through that exit wound. I mean, the enemy got a headshot on Jimmy, okay, with an AK. And Jimmy is sitting in this Humvee, gauze all over his head and face, and he's covered from head to toe in blood, his own. And I see Jimmy, I'm like, oh my gosh, what happened to you? And he was just kind of mumbling. He's like, I got shot. You know, he couldn't really hardly make it out. But he's still, he's still ticking, you know? And... So I hop in this Humvee with him. I was like, I'm just going to hold your hand, bro. And I'm just hanging onto his hand. And then they go, hey, you guys get out of that Humvee and get in the other one. And so they throw us in another Humvee. Jimmy's in the back. They tell me, like, you're going to ride shotgun in this Humvee. So we're all now, all of us wounded guys, we're going to, we're going to Charlie Med. It's like the the army section of the, the big Ramadi base. Mm. Um, that's where we're going. I wasn't, I'm not even hardly familiar with it to this day. Like I think I only went to that base once or twice, but so we're going off to the big base and the enemy was, they've been, they were burning cars and creating roadblocks and stuff all over the place, mm. you know, and what their goal was is, they wanted to isolate a small unit like us, which they did. They wanted to waylay their support for as long as they could, keep that squad cut off, and reinforce themselves to overwhelm that squad. That's what they were trying to do with us. You know, they were out to kill every single one of first squad of third platoon that day. And they came mm-hmm. they came pretty darn close to doing it. But yeah, so they were cutting off all these routes. We end up getting to base and we all offload there. And I just remember there, there's like all these um, army medics there and they just kind of had like this casual look on their face until they saw us mm-hmm. coming out of these mm-hmm. Humvees and there's, there's fallen Marines in this Humvee. There's, you know, a Marine hops out Jimmy that is covered from head to toe in blood. And the look on these people's faces was like, what in the world just rolled in here? Mm-hmm. Um, I helped Jimmy. I'm assisting him walking in there. And 
um, I helped him take his gear off and everything. And then it was at that point they realized like, this guy's really screwed up. Like here, get away Marine. Like, let me help him. And they finally took control of him and, mm-hmm. and got him taken care of. So yeah, he was, he came really close to dying several times and finally got medevaced all the way back to the, to the States. And Jimmy's had, 46 47 surgeries to this day he's a he's a total stud like i've seen jimmy have a surgical procedure done and get out of surgery in the morning and go to the gym that night okay and it's a surgery on his face and his head it's like get some extremely painful yeah he'll and i'm not talking about going to the gym and like stretching like He'll go run on a treadmill and that jogging, jarring, you know, movement is just, he doesn't care. He's very tough. That was my roommate for a long time. He was the best man at my wedding. You know, he, he lives in Kansas city today, so I don't get to see him very often, but I love that guy to death and man, what a stud. And so, yeah. Um, the other thing that happened on that, on Jimmy's side of the fight was Moises Langhorst, my, this young 18 year old Marine from Moose Lake, Minnesota. He was carrying a small that day and an M9 and he took seven rounds from the enemy and he fell in combat. And so that was really hard losing Moises. The, the enemy, here's how close they got to us. They were able to take off Moises' gear. Okay. The enemy stole his flak off of his body and they got it on videotape and I've seen the videotape. So yeah, these guys were everywhere and, you know, I don't really know exactly what happened with him. Um, and again, that, that's why, like, I'm not happy about the fact that he was carrying a small that day. I wish the, Mm -hmm. wish Mm -hmm. the man had an M16 with him, but Mm -hmm. you know what else I wish? I wish I would have never walked down that street and I wish we would have picked a different patrol route and I wish this and I wish that, and it is the way it is. Combat's Mm -hmm. combat and like. We make our decisions, we choose our weapons, we do our training, and Marines die. And that's what happens, and it's a cycle. Um, we make our adjustments, and, and we did. We, we made our adjustments off that fight. Like, that fight, that one fight that day was very constructive in many ways for our unit moving forward. Because, mm. well, I'll get, I'll get into, like, what happened in the future, but... Um, I got medevaced and I went back. And when I got back, we came under attack one time. And my reaction was, let's go get him. And I had a different squad leader when I went back. But he said, that's not what we do anymore. When they hit us, we get inside of a house. We fortify that house. We set up security on that house. We gain an elevated position. We have all the entries and exits choked off. 
And if the enemy wants to freaking come out and play, we're going to smoke him, but we're not going to walk into his freaking trap. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. You know, mm-hmm. the things you learn in combat, because, you know, there's some things you can only learn in combat. Yeah. That's one of those things sometimes. They're valuable. You know, yeah. if, if you learn it in combat, it's valuable. Mm. No doubt. And expensive. <laughs> yeah. So what happens, like, I medevaced with Ortiz, my buddy Jimmy, mm. Derek, Moises, their KIA, and my poor squad, man. Like, we're, we're cut down to six members now. Well, all of our boys go back to base and regroup, reload, rehydrate, talk about it, cry about it. And they went out the next day and the next day and several hundred insurgents died in those next like three days. And the carnage was so great that at the end of it, the end of like three days, Second Battalion, Fourth Marines was rolling around like in Humvees, blaring loudspeakers, yelling at the enemy in Farsi, and begging him to come out and fight. Mm-hmm. And he would not. Mm-hmm. And they're playing Metallica and Disturbed and all sorts of stuff like on these loudspeakers, like in your face, come get some. You know, that's what we did. And yeah, I wish I was a part of it. I didn't get to be part of that party, but I got to play my part and things happen as they may. So, but when I, when I got home, well, I got to, man, I got to hold up real quick for this one cool story. Please. I know we're going a long time here, but, um, so when I was like leaving Ramadi, or Fallujah, because I got medevac to Fallujah mm. by helicopter. But um, I'm leaving one of these places, and of course, you know they're giving me morphine and stuff, which was very nice. Really appreciated that. And <laughs> forget about that pain. In your, yeah, in your a little bit. And I find myself sitting next to this Marine in a Humvee, and the the rest of the Humvee is just filled up with wounded Marines. And, and I look around and some of these kids like, I like, I know I look young. Some of these guys look like kids. They're just so young and just the scared look on their face. Okay. And then this Marine next to me, he's, I hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen his face. And then I hear him say, it's okay. Marines be all right. Hoorah. You're okay. It's going to be all right, guys. And he's just given all these words of encouragement. And I look at him and he's got like, um, he's got a bandage over his eye, but an entire side of his face is just bloody and raw. And he'd been hit by an RPG and it knocked out one of his eyes. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, so this, this Marine, he's lost his eye. Half of his face is all mangled from an RPG. And it's 
Gunnery Sergeant Nick Popovich. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but if you look up, if you Google Cigar Marine, there's a picture of Nick Popovich in the original Iraq invasion, and he's like with his head tilted up, smoking a stogie, and it, that he was doing that like after they toppled Saddam Hussein's um, statue. Anyways, he is just the most motivating guy, and he ended up he ended up running for Congress down in San Diego. He didn't he didn't win, but I mean, I wish he did. He would have helped California a ton. But just this warrior that was so encouraging to all these younger Marines, and he doesn't even have an eyeball, and he's just like, "It's okay, Marines, you're gonna be all right," you know, like Daddy back there or something. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's <laughs> awesome. So, anyways, um, I could probably set it up, but you need to have him on your podcast. 100%. We'll connect after this with that. Yeah. Got that guy. Um, so, I get back to the States. Um, and when I come out and meet my family in the, like, the Camp Pendleton Naval Hospital area, I get back out there and I, they're like all excited to see me. I'm high on Percocet and I tell them like, as soon as I meet them, I said, I'm going back. And they're just like, yeah, okay, Joe. And I've got my, my girlfriend there, my mom and dad, my brothers and sisters, and they take me home and everything. We've got Ortiz with us hanging out. Um, and, it was just, you know, these two young Marines all jacked up. And here we are back in San Clemente, Camp Pendleton area. And it's time to go get something to Outback or in and out Burger. It was the weirdest, like, mind blow for me to be all of a sudden removed from combat back in the States and everything's normal here. But I was bound and determined to just go back. And so... Um, I told my doctor, I said, Hey, I, I want to go back and finish out this deployment with my guys. And he told me I was crazy, but he's like, okay. And so he said, we'll just leave the shrapnel inside your hand and your arm and your shoulder and everything. And just put you through some physical therapy so you can get your strength back. Cause my hand was like swollen up like a softball. It was huge. <laughs> so I worked through some, some PT and then. I got cleared to go back and I shipped out like, I want to kind of slow myself down, but like that was a really hard decision for me. Like it was an, I knew, yes, I am going back at the same time. I'm going, I'm probably going to die there because what was, excuse me, what was happening while I was gone was, two, four was losing Marines at a high rate. We actually lost 12 Marines on April 6th. It was two in my squad and echo company. The other company on our little tiny base lost 10 in one squad. Um, two, four was having a rough time. We would end up losing 34 in seven months and over 250 wounded. And like I had a good buddy, Pedro Contreras, who 
I was in boot camp, SOI with, and then he went to Echo Company as a sniper. Like they kind of made these made these guys snipers while they were in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And him and another him and a four man team of snipers were on a rooftop in June of oh four and their position was found out by the enemy and they were up there for like tw- over 24 hours mm-hmm. and radio comms were lost they sent out a, a party to go get them and all four of them were executed on top of that roof mm-hmm. nobody even knew what happened so yeah. that that was the kind of stuff going on i was like i'm definitely going back but i know there's a good chance i'm not coming home but inside of me was, if I don't do this, number one, I'm doing it because I love my guys, because of Pete, because of the other young Marines, that they need me right now. Mm. We're having a hard time, and I've got a job to do for them. But the other thing was, I was not wanting to look myself in the face for the rest of my life, knowing I can go back, but I'm not going to go back. I wanted to be able to look myself in the eye and go like, you know, you either died over there fighting or you gave it everything and you made it anyways. So, yeah, but saying goodbye to my parents that time and my brothers and sisters was really tough. Like Mm -hmm. there was actually, there was a a bunch of Marines that were like saying goodbye to me along with my family there was Marines crying at the reaction mm-hmm. of seeing my family and me mm-hmm. because everybody knew like this could be it for Joe. And and there was another young Lance corporal going with me. And then a few other guys um, that had not been over yet. And I, I know that, that was hard for them too, but it was like, mm-hmm. we, we got to go do it. So, I got back over there and it was kind of cool. Like I think my company gunny picked me up at the, at like the battalion CP and he didn't tell my platoon sergeant that I was coming back. He kept it a secret. Now, how long is this time? Why day was from when you left, to when you get, when you're coming back. Okay. So wounded April 6th back in country, July 6th. So three months. Check. And 2-4 would leave Ramadi September 25th time frame. So I, I had like another, you know, two and a half months in country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, all total, I only had like four to four and a half months in Iraq. Because three of those months were back in the States. Um, I got cheated out of it, but, uh, <laughs> I got back over there in my, my company gunny, he would like told my platoon sergeant, like, Hey, I got a little present for you, whatever. And he brings him out and out. I pop out of this Humvee and it was a good morale boost for my company. Okay, so that's gotta be huge. If your team squad platoon, huge morale boost yeah i walked in on my on my platoon and they were on qrf duty that day and it it was just like hugs from everybody it was so cool you know um feeling the love from the guys like that and 
a lot had gone on since I'd been away. Like these guys were like really battle hardened. Mm. And I had had one firefight and it was not a good outcome. So they had obviously educated themselves far past what I had, but I was eager for more. I'll tell you that. And, and we got more, we had, Mm. we had more days of, of combat, but nothing like what happened on April 6th. So outstanding. And, and the results, uh, well, I'll, I'll do a write up on it. Uh, so you guys can get it proper, but, uh, Joe actually earns a, earns a bronze star V correct. Earns a bronze. Yes. Star with a Valor device uh, for actions um, there in that time. So, so let's let's get let's get past this and and what after you leave the Marine Corps, um, we talked offline. Once you go into a little bit of what uh, what you get into as your next venture. Yeah. So I got out and found myself doing home construction for a while, not really loving it too much. Um, I did some youth pastoring with my local church for a while. And then I figured out really quick, like I need some action, excitement and adrenaline in my life. And the best way for me to get that was to hop in a police uniform and drive a patrol car. And Mm so I signed up for a police department, went through the academy Came out class leader, um, marched my my class in in Marine Corps fashion for graduation. <laughs> that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was it was tight, and yeah, hit the roads as a cop. And I worked in a small a small town, primarily Hispanic town. Um, they had like. A, local gang problem and narcotics problems and stuff like that. And I sought those people out all that I could and took them to jail all that I could. And I had a, had a good time doing it. I was pretty good at it. I would say I definitely, definitely made a name for myself, like with the local criminal element, like they figured out what my schedule was and tried to, fly under the radar when I was at work and mm-hmm. it was, it was kind of funny. So they like knew my call sign and everything. They're listening to the radio, like trying to figure out what I'm doing, where I'm going all the time. Like the, the guys that were really trying to get by without going to jail. So sure. it was, it was hilarious, but had a good time as a cop. I worked um, patrol, narcotics, gangs, and you know, got, I really enjoyed helping people. Um, I like, you know, we've we've kind of talked about like righteousness and justice and, and Mm -hmm. I really like it when someone that is, when I can help someone that's scared, like someone that's living in a bad neighborhood with gang members that like want to walk down the street and intimidate the community because they're displaying their gang tattoos and, and they're throwing their gang signs up at people and the people are like, Oh, I'm not going to do anything. I like to walk up to that guy and arrest him and mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. Hey, guess what, thug? You're going to jail today. 
and you can't terrorize this community anymore. And I just, I love that, like protecting people that way right. and kind of being that, that knight out there. I'm sure somebody can criticize yeah, the mentality. Archetypical, archetypical defender. Yeah. Because protector, yeah. there really is evil out there. Mm. And I had something to, I had something to work on, you know, I had a mission. So I had some, I had some very violent encounters as a police officer, a couple nights mm -hmm. that I came close to losing my life, um, dealing with men trying to kill me or my partner. And, you know, I can say I, I dealt with it the best that I could per my department policy and the laws of the land, you know, and my training and experience. So, um, came out of that the way I did, like, um, I'm now retired. I've been injured a few times on the job, like dealing with bad guys mm -hmm. and you know, the body takes a beating. You, I learned that I was not invincible. Like if I didn't learn that in Iraq after getting blown up, I learned it as a cop and I just finally recognized that I guess this body is going to deteriorate some over some time and things hurt and things don't work anymore. Um, some things still work great, but um, yeah, you, for me to go out there with the intensity that I did, like that has to stop because the bad guys always stay young. They're always like 19 to 22 years old, you know, fighting that guy at four in the morning as a 38, 39 year old cop is not going to go good for you. It's different. <laughs> Still out. Yeah, man. Uh, so you retire from the police force and then, um, and then get into your podcast calling. What was it yeah. that what was it that, that gripped you and said, you know, it's time to do this? I've stayed in touch with most of my buddies from the Marine Corps. Um and if I don't see them much, you know, I, I try I try to stay in touch via phone, um, talking on our reunion type days, anniversary days, mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. April 6th is a big day for all of us. And mm -hmm. we're, we're talking to each other. We're meeting each other, Facebooking it up and all that kind of stuff. You know, the memories. Well, this last summer, um, when one of my buddies committed suicide, his name was Colt Shermer. And Colt was, he was in third platoon, but then he went recon before we went to Iraq mm. and Colt was in Fallujah while I was in Ramadi. And when I got medevaced from Ramadi to Fallujah, I found myself on an operating table and not that they were operating on me, but they're just like changing my wound dressing. And I'm, I happened to be talking to a corpsman and I asked who he was with. He said he's with first recon and I said, oh, I got a buddy in First Recon. His name's Colt Shermer. And he goes, Colt is in my team. 
how about I go get them for you? And so, how about, yeah. <laughs> so he goes and gets Colt and Colt comes and sees me and says hi to me and prays with me and spends time with me as I'm, I mean, I'll tell you what, after that firefight and losing Derek, like I did, I was very upset. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I cried. I cried in Ramadi when I saw a chaplain in the hospital. When I saw that cross on his lapel, I broke down. And then they hit mm-hmm. me with morphine. Um, and I'm pretty sure I cried again with Colt. But I was just like processing the weight of what had happened, mm-hmm. of losing a, a Marine. And I can tell you like some of my memories of what had happened were not even there as I was talking to Colt. Some of mm-hmm. them didn't come back to me until I got to Germany. Mm-hmm. That's weird. Like mm-hmm. um, combat and, and yes, a concussion getting rocked by a grenade that does something to your brain. And like, I don't know if you guys have experienced that, like remembering something and then the next day or three days later, remembering it totally different. But I really experienced that there. Yeah, I think everybody that's in, not everybody, but I think a significant portion of people when they have that chemical cocktail, that dopamine and adrenaline and uh, that dump go down the spinal column. And then not only that, but you are in extreme peril. Um, The way I understand it, and I am no expert. I did not go to school. I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a brain guy. I've just researched my own injuries. um, Damn near to exhaustion, it feels like sometimes. But in my opinion, it's a self-defense mechanism that the body is doing to protect you from traumatic experiences and memories. And the way they tell it to me is like you had a file folder. You open a file cabinet, right? And there's a thousand files in there. And what would normally happen in a normal situation is that entire day's events will be stored chronologically in the right folders so that you have quick acquisition to go over and grab those and bring them out and have that memory. Whereas... When there's extreme peril, uh, adrenaline, life on the line type situations and extreme trauma. And, and, and I don't even think it has to uh, be combat only. You know, this could be any severe trauma and, uh, and danger. I think by way of design, the brain, the way I understand it and it was explained to me, stores these files. It takes that entire day's memory bank or that entire uh, traumatic events memory bank. And it's not that it doesn't store it, but it spread loads it through those thousand files, not where it's supposed to go. And then as you begin to come out and recover and make sense of things, you're able in your brain to reorganize and recollect these memories into what seemingly is their own file again. Um, and, And I don't know that that, all goes back in order correctly or that it all goes back period some of it i don't think does but i can tell you this i did a lot of interviews for my book and i do a lot of interviews now and 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 with guys i was there with and without and the guys that were in extreme peril and the guys that were in gunfights like you're describing uh with your situation you could ask every member in the team in a team how that fight went down and every member of that team will give you a different story of exactly how that went down. And they would believe it to a T to be the only way it went down because they remembered it so perfectly like it was yesterday. Right. But every one of them perceived a different thing. 
Right. So I think yeah. that it's a self-defense mechanism. And yes, to answer your question in short, I deal with, dealt with that, deal with that, Matt. We've dealt with it. Everybody. Yeah. So. And it's also, that yeah, the, the memory is also about uh, perspective too, sure. as far as different memories for same events. Sure. Perspectives. So. So. <clears throat> Getting back to Colt, um, yeah, so, I mean, this guy, he's part of my story of when I was wounded and medevaced and, and being there for me, and Colt was in my wedding. Mm. I lost my dad um, last January of 21 and, you know, lost my dad to cancer. It was rough. Like, my, man, my dad went through all this stuff with me. Mm-hmm. The bipods I had on my M16 were from my dad giving, me, giving them to me. And Colt called me the day my dad died. And it wasn't but a few months, and Colt took his own life this last summer. And he was a, he was a part of the Raiders out of Camp Pendleton, he was a master sergeant. He was pretty high and mighty as far as like, you know, the external appearances of of power and prestige in the Marine Corps. He was doing it all well. But there was something going on inside of him. And when that happened, I realized I've got to get in the fight because this keeps happening. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just Colt. He's not like a, you know, just a one-off or something like my guys keep, keep doing it. It's an epidemic, and I feel like it's contagious. You know, mm. Colt does it, and then another Marine here that knows Colt, thinks about it, dwells upon it, and they put it in the back of their brain, and they go, I'm not going to do that today or tomorrow, but I probably am some other day. And they start mm. believing that they Marines out there are believing that they will commit suicide someday. And they'll look you in the eye and they'll tell you they won't. They'll look you in the eye and and tell you, I got your six. Okay. Call me if you're ever down. Okay. But while they're telling you that some of them have already fastened it into their brain, that they're going to do it. Mm. And it doesn't have to be like that. So I decided to start the day of battle podcast to get in the fight. And my mission is not just to prevent guys from committing suicide, okay? My mission is to give guys, to show them the way to not just life, but an abundant life. The Bible says, Jesus told us he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And I look at examples throughout scripture of men who dealt with PTSD who were hardened battlefield warriors, a man like David, okay? David, most of us know the story of David and Goliath. David fought Goliath at 14 to 16 years old, most likely. He put a rock through Goliath's forehead with his slingshot. The rock impacted his forehead, took him down, and then David decapitated Goliath and carried his head back to camp to the king. That's Mm -hmm. hardcore. Okay. 
that hardcore warrior was a man of God. And David made mistakes. Okay, he he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had one of his buddies, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, essentially killed on the battlefield. He left him hanging out to dry to like cover up David's adulterous act. Um, David killed hundreds and probably thousands of Philistines in battle. David had betrayal by his friends. They betrayed him. He was betrayed by his own son. Um, his own son came for, for David's throne. And David had these ups and these, and these downs and these good days and these bad days. And I, I think that most of us warriors out there can identify with David most likely on the warrior scale, okay, we've been through that. Many of us can identify with him from dealing with, like, sexual issues, okay? I mean, most Marines out there have been looking at pornography. Many have been cheating on their spouses while they're deployed or, you know, hitting the libo port in Thailand or something, okay? Like, Marines... Men can identify with David. Um, what does David do? Does he kill himself? No. Instead, he turns his attention to God. And he says, God, I am going to seek you with my whole heart. I'm going to seek after you. I want you to show me your face. I'm going to worship you. And I'm going to wait for your coming kingdom. And in spite of all these horrible things going on around me, and everything crashing down and crumbling, I'm going to wait for your kingdom and put trust in the coming one who will sit upon my throne after me that will reign for eternity, which is known to be Jesus Christ, who is, Jesus is the son of David. He's actually, Jesus is genetically related to King David. If you read Matthew 1, 1, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He is David's offspring, the coming king, the king of the entire universe. And his answer is, I'm going to wait for the king. I'm going to focus on that kingdom. You look at the apostle Paul in the Bible. That was a man that dealt with horrible guilt. And many guys out there in the warrior community deal with guilt, battlefield guilt, guilt of, I wish I would have killed more people, guilt of, I wish I wouldn't have killed so many people, I wish I wouldn't have let my buddy down. Okay, the Apostle Paul was, when he, before he was Paul, he was Saul. He was a Pharisee, and he hunted down Christians. He literally hunted them down to put into prison to be executed. When Stephen in the Bible was preaching his sermon and being stoned to death, Paul was holding the coats of the men stoning him as like, hey guys, stone him while I hold your jacket for you, okay? Paul had, or Saul, had an encounter with Jesus on his road to Damascus. Jesus blinded him with a light. Because Saul saw Jesus. His name was changed to Paul. Kind of a long story. Anyways, his life was changed when he met Jesus. And he went out there 
from being the guy that hunted down Christians better than anybody else in all the land to the guy that went out and started the most churches and wrote the most letters in the New Testament to the various churches. I mean, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, probably Hebrews. Those are all Paul writing those letters. Before he wrote those, he was a persecutor of Christians. He went to a horrible prison in a Philippian jail, and he was like chained down in this dungeon. And he wrote Philippians, which is a book about, about how to have joy in your life by focusing on Christ. And it's like, man, if this guy who did struggle with a lot of guilt from all the persecution that he'd done, like some warriors do, okay? And, and I, I have buddies out there that really struggle with, with like guilty, toxic thoughts because of, because of combat issues, okay? And mm -hmm. Paul had that too. He struggled with that. He remembered the Christians that he had part in torturing, and now he's trying to lead the church. But his answer is, I'm going to focus upon Jesus. And Jesus Christ is more than capable of taking care of all of these issues that we have as veterans. The PTSD, okay, what does everybody say when somebody kills themselves as a veteran? They always say, he gave in to his demons. He lost his battle, right? And it's like... Mm -hmm. Well, when I read about Jesus Christ, I read that he encountered a man that was demon-possessed out in this wilderness area. And this man had been chained to be out in this place because people didn't want him around because he was like 5150 danger to himself and others, right? And when Jesus met him, the demons like cried out to him, like, you are the son of God, the son of David. And it wasn't just one demon. It, was, it says it was a legion of demons. It was mm -hmm. like a regiment of demons inside this guy. And Jesus commanded those demons out of him. And when he did that, the demons left the man. And the man was restored to mental sanity. And he followed after Jesus. And his life was changed. And the mm -hmm. people were amazed. And I just look at that and I go, if Jesus can do that to a man, if he has the control mm. and the power over the demonic realm over a, a legion of demons, can he help a veteran that is dealing with bad thoughts from Iraq or Afghanistan? Of course he can. And I'm, I'm not trying to say like, that nobody needs any counseling, therapy, or medication, okay? You may. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. My goal is not to get you in therapy, medications, and rehab, okay? Mm -hmm. My goal at the Day of Battle podcast is to show you that you may have these issues. You may deal with this for the rest of your life, but you know what? Jesus will be with you while you go through it. Just like, okay, on April 6th, it freaking hit the fan for us. 
And I can tell you that Jesus was with us. He was present with us. He was watching over us. He allowed bad things to happen. He allowed horrible things to happen, but he was still with me. And in spite of all that, it's like I fast forward to the PTSD stuff in my life and it's horrible. I don't like it. Okay. I am. I, I deal with a lot of stuff and sometimes I, I think that God has allowed me to have it and to continue struggling with it because he wants me to focus on him and to just constantly like every day say, God, I want you to deliver me from the situation because I can't do it myself. And mm-hmm. the, what am I supposed to do? Go and, and see a doctor for the rest of my life and get myself on Xanax. Like, I'm not going to do that to myself. Mm-hmm. I can't. I have a wife and three children. I have to be a father. I have to, mm-hmm. I have to have my sanity. And I'm not trying to talk bad about anybody else that, that does take the medication route. I just know for me, I'm just going to give it to Jesus. I'm going to trust him that he is able to defeat whatever demons may be messing with me. And Mm -hmm. I believe he's that powerful. And so I have perfect faith and confidence in that. And and I can tell you that he's never let me down. He's always been with me. And, And there's been, I can tell you about Iraq and I can tell you about nights as a police officer when I had people trying to kill me. And maybe I do get killed someday. I don't know. But he's always with me. And, mm-hmm. that, and that's good enough. And so, I mean, for all of us warriors out there, like, it's not death we're scared of. It's being alone. Nobody wants to be alone. And many of us, if you knew that your buddy would go to combat with you again and that you two could just die side by side in battle. Most of us would probably be okay with that. Right. All right, bro. Like hail a gunfire, taking out as many as we can. It's, we don't want to be alone. It's not that we don't want to get shot at. We're okay getting shot at, but we want our battle buddy with us. And in a similar way, Jesus gives you that. He promises to never leave you, never forsake you. And and we go through life and we feel like he's not there sometimes. And and you see these stories in the Bible like the disciples are out on the boat and the waves are going and the wind's blowing and it's rocking and they're all freaked out. And then Jesus is there sleeping in the boat. And then when they finally wake him up, he says, peace, be still. And he calms the storm. Or he goes to, um, you know, he goes and sees Mary and Martha because their, their brother Lazarus has died. And Martha says, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the thing is, is, He's, he knows everything. He promises to always be with you. 
He doesn't promise that bad things won't happen. Okay. He, he does allow bad things to happen, but he does promise to be just and to be righteous and to deal with it all in the end. And so I have complete faith and confidence that, that someday he's going to rule from the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem upon Mount Zion's hill in the temple, and he will rule over his enemies. And all that Al-Qaeda and Taliban and ISIS and Hezbollah and Hamas, all those freaking pieces of garbage, they will be demolished by Jesus. That's who he is. He is a warrior king. He, he is not this picturesque, um, meek and mild, you can talk smack to person like he's always portrayed in our culture. When Jesus returns, he, it says that he will have a robe dipped in blood, okay? Because he's going to tread upon his enemies like he would tread a wine press, smashing grapes with his feet. He is going to go through the Middle East, and you can read all about it in the prophets. Jesus goes through the Middle East. He destroys the same people we've been fighting for all these years, and he runs them through like they are nothing. And that's who I serve. So it's like he, he's the perfect ultimate culmination of the end of this battle that we're all waiting for here. Man, well, I'm like, I just wanted to hurry up and get on because I'm looking forward to, to what he's going to do someday. And I, and I trust him in the here and now that he's got me, that, I'm, that he's with me. And man, I, I just want to serve him. I want to live for him. So that, yeah, that's the long answer, I guess, of why I started the Day gotcha. of Battle podcast. Yeah, and so for people that are interested in uh, in checking out checking that out, how, how do they get in touch with you, or how do they get in touch with the podcast itself? Yeah, so perfect question. Um, what I have is I'm on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So if you just go to one of those platforms and search Day of Battle Podcast, Day of Battle, um, you can find me, no problem. And then if you're on YouTube, well, let me back up. On my podcast platforms, I'm dropping an episode about once a week. And it's me talking in a microphone, and I'm, I'm addressing issues that I believe my men need to hear about for their, for their soul. Okay. It's their spirituality, mm -hmm. but I'm bringing it. I'm bringing that message with a military type of a Marine type of, um, tempo voice, you know, like I'm talking to warriors here. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking to kindergartners. So that's what I do on my podcast. And then I have a YouTube channel. It's just called Day of Battle on YouTube. And that, I drop about two videos a week. And what I've been doing so far is I'm going through the Psalms. And that's, that's like David pouring out his heart to God as a warrior. And I want to join him in that. And so I think starting out our day... As men, keying into the word of God, seeing what it has to speak to us, 
And yeah, man, just starting our day like that, because the day of battle is not over. It's, it mm. wasn't just Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam. It's right now. It's tomorrow. Every day. It's two in the morning when you wake up to take a leak and you, and a weird thought goes through your head. Like, Oh, should I go kill him? Kill myself right now? Because there's a veteran listening right now. And whenever he wakes up in the middle of the night, he thinks, should I just kill myself right now? No, you shouldn't. And, and I, I want to throw this out there. I say, and I swear to you two men and everybody listening that I, Joe Hayes, will never commit suicide. I'm not scared to say it. And I know that I'll never be proven wrong because I have chosen that I'm going to serve Jesus my entire life. And I believe that if I am serving Jesus and he has control over me and he has regenerated my mind and renewed my spirit, that he will not ever lead me to destroy myself like that. And some of us listening right now don't have that confidence in their mind. Mm -hmm. They say, well, good for you, Joe, but for me, I don't know if I am or not. And if you don't know if you are, that's really bad. Because like we've talked about, this suicide is like contagious right now. It's so bad, but it's not final, I wouldn't say. Because at the end of the day, it's a choice. Um, you're making a choice. And I think what you do by... Um, I think what you do by publicly stating I, Joe Hayes, will never commit suicide or I, Ryan Rogers, will never commit suicide, and I can attest to that right now, the same as you, I think it's important because you're in a solid state of mind, uninhibited by alcohol and drugs, so you're clear-minded with your wits, and you're making a choice to say now here in front of God and everybody, I will not do this, that I swear to you. And that may be just enough of a, a set in your mind that when drugs and alcohol might be involved, when the bad dreams might be involved, when the anniversary dates or the alive days come up and you're just feeling like crushed, it may be that statement that you tested in front of God, in front of your friends, that puts that one degree of separation in there from a crazy idea. And so I seen you did that when, yeah. I, you know, I've been watching your, watching your cast and, and I seen you, um, you know, going up the hill and paying homage to, um, you know, I didn't even know that, that it existed up there. So I'm glad you did that. Cause I don't think a lot of people even know about it. And, uh, and then you kind of, you kind of mentioned some of the same things, things today as you, as you did then. And, um, I think there's a lot to that, and I think that if anybody's serious about struggling with that, uh, I, I would do the same thing as you, challenge them to, to, to make that vow and make that choice in a sane frame of mind uh, and save that for later. I, I like the way you do that. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I don't want to say that in my own strength, okay? It is not me that I trust in. It is not my discipline that I'm putting my faith in. What I'm going to do is I've given my life to Jesus. He, I don't own me anymore. Mm -hmm. He owns me. He may do with me what he will. 
I only want to be his tool. Whether if he wants me to be a hammer or a shovel or a feather duster, okay? I want to be the tool in God's hands. And his plan is never for his creation and for who he loves to kill himself. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. always our plan when things don't go right. So I choose to submit myself to his will. And I'm going to trust his spirit to lead me. And I'm going to stay involved and plugged into his word so that he is constantly speaking to me through his written mm-hmm. word. And that's all that I have to trust upon. So I'm not trusting to me for it, just like my salvation. Like, I know that when I do die someday, I am going to go to heaven. I'm going to live with Jesus and I'm going to see my father and I'm going to see Derek Halal. But I don't put my trust in me and the way I've lived my life to get me there because I know that I'm not good enough. So I have put all of my faith in Jesus for him to save me from my sins because he died on the cross for me and he's my king and I belong to him. So he has washed my sins away. He has removed my guilt, my shame, just everything negative he's removed and he's put his righteousness upon me. So like when God looks at me, he doesn't see Joe with all of his faults. He sees Jesus Christ with his blood washed over me. That's what he sees. And now I am righteous in his sight because of what he has done. So that gives me hope. Like I have so much hope in this life and I, I know that bad things happen. Okay. I'm not saying like everything's great in my life. It's so easy now. That's not it. I just lost my father to cancer last year. I watched my dad who I love so much. Okay. I can't tell you how close I was with him. I watched my dad starve to death and die of thirst over nine days as cancer took him underneath 100 pounds until he died. Mm -hmm. bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to people that love God, but God allows it in their life because he's doing something more. And I can tell you what he did with my dad in that horrible time was amazing because he got my dad to really, really depend upon him. And I don't think it's an accident that some of the biggest changes in my life have come after seeing my dad go through that and, you know, figuring out like, man, I've got another purpose now. I have got to start helping out guys that are going through stuff like Colt was. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, this fight keeps happening. Marines keep losing their battles, right? Like I had a, I have a guy that I know that just killed himself two days ago. Um, I don't think it is a contagious epidemic. I, I hear that. I think just from what I know uh, and the research I've done and, and, and do on the subject, I think is down from 22 a day to 
something like 16 or 17 a day if you want to average it out. So I would say that we're stepping in the right direction. Um, my biggest fear with the epidemic of suicide amongst service members is that, and again, take this with a grain of salt. This is my own independent looking into things, but I, I wonder how much of it is accelerated by drugs and alcohol. And I wonder how many times it is that somebody lowered their inhibitions with a with a crutch or or a fix or a medication, and it was just enough to allow for uh, recklessness that couldn't be taken back ever. And I'm not doubting some some of these guys. There's no doubt in my mind that wasn't that they were ready to go. They wanted they wanted to control or have some sort of control over their fate. Uh, and but I love what you're doing, and I think what you're doing is correct. I think it's righteous. I will continue following. I will continue uh, uh, putting you out there uh, and, and referring my friends and my followers to that. I think it's needed. I think it's a necessary uh, and important uh, service that you're providing, 100. percent And um, and we thank you for that and, and for your service in general. Um, uh, from me, thank you. That, that like some of the things that you've been through are are uh, are hands down bad times, and you're able to uh, sit here today and show. Yes, even though this is bad, I was able to persevere, and so can you. And I can show you how. That's admirable, um, and I appreciate that from you. Uh, we've went for a minute now, and uh, and I know that there's more to come, and, and I'm sure that we'll link up again. But as a parting shot for this uh, for this segment, uh, I want to give the, this, this time to you as a guest to uh, reach out to anybody that uh, is listening right now and give them, you know, take the last minute, two minutes, and give them anything you got as far as advice and recommendations and your message, Joe Hayes' message to the uh, to the viewers. Well, thank you, Ryan and Matt. God bless you guys. This has been amazing being on here. Um, my recording says four hours and 28 minutes. I know a couple of things will get chopped out of there, but. <laughs> man. Pretty solid, pretty solid, solid time. But yeah, for, for the listeners right now, um, hey, I want you to know that you are not alone. And there is someone out there who doesn't just have your six. Okay. Like I know your buddy has your six, but I want you to think about this. The Bible says in Isaiah 52, it says the Lord goes before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So the Lord is before you and the God of Israel is behind you. He has your 12 and he has your six. Your buddy may have your six, okay? And I know we all have the best of intentions with our buddies. And it's like, yeah, you can call me whenever you want. But sometimes we don't. And sometimes they don't answer. And sometimes they're too busy. And life gets in the way. But I can tell you something, without a doubt, that Jesus Christ is not too busy for you. He sees you. He is available to you. He hears you but you must call to him. Like I called to him on April 6th from the prone position, slinging lead at Al-Qaeda or ISIS, whoever those 
dudes were. Lord, deliver me. Save me. When you pray to him with all your heart, he will hear you. So he has your 12 and he has your six. Ryan and Matt, thank you, gentlemen. Semper Fi, kill them all. <laughs> hey, man, I appreciate it. Humbled, honored. We appreciate you coming on. We appreciate the gouge, the time, the lessons learned. And, um, and I'm sure we'll be in touch, man. We'll stay, we'll stay at it. I, I love what you're doing, and, uh, and, and don't stop. You're making a change, man. All right, guys, from Choices Not Chances, from me and Matt, we appreciate you hanging out, guys, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Funny.